Listen to this podcast or I'll gut you. Welcome back, horror hounds, to Ghostman and Rivera's Horror Show podcast. I'm Mike Ghostface Pickle, and I'm James Ghostfaced Rivera. Today. <laughs> today, so today we have a special podcast. We are going to be talking about the classic, the one, the only, the Scream. Us, not the trilogy. What am I saying? The Scream series, the series that is most responsible for revitalizing the slasher subgenre and horror period in the 90s completely revitalized it changed the game and gave us some new icons to root for it's a it's a legendary franchise with just four movies and and i I think all of them are pretty good i don't think there's any of them that are just a complete clunker let's jump right into it because we got four to discuss we got uh scream 1996 of course directed by the great wes craven uh when he did this movie he had already done uh, last house on the left hills have eyes deadly blessing a Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, Deadly Friend, Serpent in the Rainbow, Shocker, People Under the Stairs, and A New Nightmare. So he had already had a quite an impressive resume when he got this one. It's written by Kevin Williamson. This was his first feature, and he went on to do I Know What You Did Last Summer, yeah. uh, the, fac- the Faculty, uh, which was really good, Cursed, uh, and uh, oh, quite a few episodes of the Scream TV series. Uh, this one stars, of course, the... Uh, now legendary Scream Queen, Nev Campbell as Sidney Prescott, Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, David Arquette as Dewey, Skeet Ulrich as Billy, Matthew Lillard as Stewart, Jamie Kennedy as Randy, Rose McGowan as Tatum, and of course Drew Barrymore in the opening scene as Casey. Uh, the synopsis is a year after the murder of her mother, teen Sidney Prescott is terrorized by a killer who targets her and her friends by using horror tropes as part of his game. Uh, this uh, great cinematographer on this one, Mark Irwin. He was actually, it's, I find it surprising that Mark Irwin was fired from the set before they, uh, before they finished, because uh, he did The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, The Dead Zone, The Fly, The Blob remake, uh, and New Nightmare, but I guess uh, they got the dailies back and they were, they were kind of fuzzy and some of them were kind of out of focus, so he fired him. Really? Yeah, and uh, you can't tell by the, by the look, this, the, the movie looks beautiful. And then uh, has effects makeup. It's so sweetly and so carefully shot and so measured. Like I, I, I mean, I don't know. That's that's. that's (laughs) And uh, great effects makeup by Greg Nicotero, Robert Kurtzman, and Howard Berger of K and B Effects. I love the way it starts. That a lot of the great horror classics start with a big, impressive opening sequence, right? But this one. Simple title with the heartbeat, and then bam, phone rings, and Drew Barrymore picks up, and you're thrown right into the action. Yeah, I, I have to say, I mean, I mean, it goes without saying, but we're on a podcast, so we're going to say it anyway. The opening of this movie is fucking legendary. You know, you know what I mean? It's absolutely legendary. Um, one of the um, greatest openings of, and I wouldn't say just of horror movies. It's one of the greatest horror movie opening sequences of all time, but I think it's one of the greatest sequences, opening sequences of uh, any horror movie. It kind of established to me in a strange way, 
this oh. is almost like uh, this franchise oh. does what the James Bond franchise does for action. I know that sounds like a weird comparison, but each James Bond movie opens up with these really dazzling, impressive set pieces before you settle into the story. And this does the exact same thing, except it does it with oh. a structure. It's uh, uh, expertly directed. Like, I feel like if you want to understand why uh, Wes Craven is so weird and why he's considered such a master of horror and such a gifted filmmaker, all you need to do is show somebody the opening sequence of Scream and you understand why. Every shot is perfectly selected to draw attention just at the right moments. So subtle, so beautiful. I love the way it starts off, like you said, just a close-up on the phone ringing. Drew Barrymore picks up. She hangs up. Rings again when it comes back. It's a Dutch angle. And I love that Dutch angle because right away, it goes from being a very balanced, very classically framed thing to being something slightly askew, slightly off balance. And I know a lot of people don't pay attention to, you know, what the camera is doing and stuff. But even if you don't like pay attention and you're not noticing it, your brain does register that something is off. It's these careful, subtle psychological tricks by just using the camera. Then it cuts to an outside shot where it just pans down and you see uh, out to the outside of the house and you just see a, a swing, swing very slowly back and forth. And it just lets the audience know very subtlety that somebody is sneaking around the property and some, something's up. Then you gets the call back. You get those beautiful fish, uh, those are fish lenses, right? Like the, fi uh, the fish eye angle. Yeah, like an extra wide angle, yeah. Yeah. It kind of distorts the space within the house when Drew Barrymore moves around. It has such a weird effect that's kind of distorting. Then she puts a Jiffy Pop popcorn on, on the stove. I don't even know if Jiffy Pop is a thing anymore. But yeah. um, for what it does, it, it's this little subtle thing that's going on in the background. And the more that the popcorn blows up, the more tense the scene goes to the point where it's almost bursting with tension the way the scene is. It's like so many beautiful choices and so much great shot selection, uh, great gore sequences uh, just in this brief amount of time. Drew Barrymore, who's America's sweetheart at the time and her family's Hollywood royalty is like, is taking Psycho a step further with Janet Lee, where she was the, the, the star of Psycho and people were so shocked to see her kill 30 minutes in. Drew Barrymore was by far the biggest person in the cast of this movie. And she gets killed like what, 12, 13 minutes into the movie? Yeah. And so good in her victim performance. I feel like if you isolated just this opening sequence and took it away from the rest of the movie, it would probably be like the greatest horror short film ever made. Well, it's, it's not just an overall well-crafted scene. It's, it comes down to every single shot. Like, you notice it right away. It grabs you. The, the shot selection is immediately exciting. And then the conversation gets more and more sinister. And then you get these little lines in there, like, I want to know what I'm looking at. And then you get that dolly shot that zooms closer to Drew Barrymore. And then the score kind of ramps up. Brr, brr, and then he's, subtly, and then he's, too. Subtly, yeah. you don't notice it too much. It's just that, boom, boom, And it's really, ugh. Yeah, and, and then he ramps up the tension with saying stuff like, I got you like a fish, and then I want to see what your insides look like. Every single line, every shot, every piece of score is just pitch perfect in that one. Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. And then you, you got, you got the, the doorbell ringing, and then she's freaking out at the door, and then the phone rings. And then the t by that time, the tension's insane, and then the patio light comes on, and you see her boyfriend, and that really ramps up the horror right there not just the tension uh and the the whole emotional aspect of the parents pulling up 
and you, you think she's going to get the attention of her parents and then she comes face to face with Ghostface. And then that whole iconic slow-mo chase toward, toward the camera. And then the, the, he reaches out from around her and stabs her in the gut. And her parents are right there. She's almost within earshot of her parents, but she can't call to them because her throat's slit. And then you hear the, the, uh, the parents hear her being killed on the phone and you really feel the emotional impact of the parents. And then bam, you see her hanging in a tree gutted and I love that last scene before that, at the end of the opening sequence, that fast, shaky camera that zooms towards her, and then the score crash and screen comes up. Just classic from beginning to end, that, that little scene was. It uses zoom ups and slow downs very quick to the point where you don't notice. Like that scene where, that part where you're talking about where she's running up to that slow motion, it actually doesn't feel like slow motion, even though it is it feels like it's psychologically giving you the feeling of what it would be like to being chased by a killer where time is actually slowing down for one second and everything hinges on you just getting away and not doing it, not doing it. It barely comes across as slow motion, more of like a psycholog psychologically how time would slow down in your head in such a dire situ situation. And especially uh, for a, a bigger movie that was played in theaters, you hadn't seen a whole lot of stabbing, like the knife going in a person, mm -hmm. you know, and this, this was pretty shocking for me to see him come around with the knife and you expect him to cut away at any moment. No, he comes all the way around her body and goes right into her stomach. It's pretty gnarly. Oh yeah. It was just a great opening sequence. And, and fuck, I mean, it's one of those things where people tell me, I was like, Oh, you're going to start screaming, but I'm, I missed the first 10, 15 minutes. Like, don't do it then. Wait until you yeah. actually watch. I mean, I mean, who has? I mean, there's people who haven't, but that's my advice. If you've never seen Scream, wait, and you need to watch it from the very first second. You do not want to miss a second of the opening sequence because I feel you miss so much of what establishes the tension and how dangerous the world is going to be before it settles into its story, which is all very good, and it's loaded with classic and great sequences, but it is the standout part of the movie is the opening sequence as brilliant as the rest of the thing is and it's a great horror movie total classic that is the scene yeah and and then immediately following that opening sequence it's just another simple just the title comes up scream and you go right into the movie no no title sequence or anything so then you see billy for the first time you see billy and uh, sid and then right away billy tells sid that he that he saw the exorcist and it reminds him of her because it's edited for television. I'm like this guy is a douchebag, like right from the beginning. And it's not like he has a moment of being a douchebag. Every single line he says is nasty and toxic. And, and he delivers it as if it's not nasty and toxic. He talks, yeah. he says it so casually, like he's just having conversation. And I was watching the exorcist and it reminded our, of our relate. Like who the hell says that to somebody first off? Yeah, and, and then you find out that the Fonz from Happy Days is the principal. And then you, you get immediately introduced to this very likable group of friends. Uh, and, then, and then right away, he starts throwing uh, misdirection at you and, and makes it obvious who the killers are from the very first scene. Because you, you meet the group of friends for the first time. Stu starts describing cutting somebody. And then he even suggests that he could be the killer. And then you even see, I didn't see this before, but you even see Billy looking at him like, hey, dude, shut up. Like, it makes it so obvious that they're the killers, right? From but, the, right you know, from but you know what allows him to get away with it? 
is Randy is acting like such a weirdo creep in that scene when he's talking about it, and he has such a callous attitude, which he grows during the over... I mean, he's only in two movies, but he kind of grows to be a little bit more empathetic, but he has such a callous attitude. It's like, their bodies were gutted and, like, making these weird faces. He's a weird character. I didn't realize how strange he was until I watched the again in both part one and part two. He does odd he's he's odd but like because his character is so strange and so callous and is so gleefully describing it because you could tell he's into horror movies you almost don't think maybe it could be him too so it does it in your face so it's so blatantly in your face but the presence of randy and his weird behavior all makes it easy to pass by to think i still don't know who the killer is yeah it's it's so many misdirection and and i remember the, the misdirection kind of fooling me but i didn't remember how obvious craven made it from the beginning and then that scene goes right into ghostface calling sid mm-hmm. that's another great little sequence where where she talks about uh horror movies are insulting like it's a a, a blonde bimbo with big tits or, or is is uh running up the stairs instead of running out the door so it, it starts that clever dialogue right away and then she goes to the front door and opens it. So, so it shows right away that she's more assertive, more bold, and less of a victim than we saw Drew Barrymore in the opening scene. And then Craven makes it obvious that Billy's the killer again because Billy shows up during the middle of all this. And then Dewey shows up the door, at the door with the mask. So it seems so obvious that it's Billy right there, but then uh, uh, he misdirects you so easily. Really quick, Dewey, I love Dewey, but he's such a dingbat, like him holding up the mask right there. It's a weird parallel, but in Scary Movie, the character that they use in Scary Movie to parody him, Doofy, is an exaggeration, but sometimes it's not that much of an exaggeration of how goofy he actually comes across sometimes. It's like such an odd, that's another character. It's another odd character. I don't think it misdirects you to think that Dewey could be the killer, but some of the characters are so odd that you think that anybody could be the killer at this point. And I thought it was funny that uh, uh, David Arquette, which originally went out for the, the role of Billy, and he ended up uh, campaigning for the role of Dewey instead, because Dewey was supposed to be like a good-looking, like leading man type of guy. Mm-hmm. But when he, st- he stepped into the role, then he became kind of goofy. So he had a lot to do with the, the dynamic of that, that whole core group. I mean, one of the reasons, I, from what I understand, they wanted Skeet Ulrich at the time is he kind of resembles a young Johnny Depp, uh, kind of yeah. like a nightmare on Elm Street, and it only kind of reinforces like the callbacks to earlier slasher films and the fact that this is a tribute to it. And it's made by, directed by somebody who is one of the most legendary um, creators of slasher films. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Gail Weathers shows up, and she, she's... She gets more likable as the series goes on, but she was really unlikable when, when we first see her because uh, she's supposed to illustrate how media is obsessed with disaster. And then, uh, and then Ghostface calls Sid again, and Billy's in jail, and this is, this is such the, the easy misdirect. Like, Craven just showed you through dialogue and through what happened at Sid's house that Billy is the killer, and then all of a sudden when... When Ghostface calls Sid while Billy's in jail, you say, well, oh, I guess he didn't do it then. <laughs> yeah. And great misdirection. Really great misdirection. 
Yeah, and then uh, Billy has yet another douchebag line. We said when he's telling her to get over your mom's death, it's been like a year. <laughs> like this dude is not even likable. It's not even believable that Ned would even be with this guy. <laughs> no, it's not. You know what? Actually, the only thing that's believable about it, in my opinion, is that he's supposed to be this good-looking like teen heartthrob, which I guess Skeet Ulrich was in the '90s. Though I don't know where that guy is anymore. Oh, he's on. Um, I take that back. He's on Ah Riverdale. That's what he's oh yeah, on. yeah. He's on Riverdale, but that—that's really he's. Other than that, he's actually really unlikable and kind of a moron, though not as much as moron as his partner and his buddy Stu. God, he's. Yeah. A- <laughs> I I feel like I know Stu. He's like that douchebag, annoying, overly loud, insensitive, obnoxious prick that we all went to high school with. I feel like every high school had at least one or two people like that. We all knew somebody like Stu. Yeah. And then uh, we get another red red herring with the principal where they make you think that the principal's the killer. And I, I like where he throws the red herring right before that character gets killed. Like, I, oh. Hey, <laughs> that red herring is funny because, for one thing, would a principal really get away with, like, the way that he so theatrically is, like, like moving the scissors around and, like, cutting to his face and slicing through the air and, like, putting it up right up against like a student's throat and saying the no uh would it be fair would it be to like to uh, he says they should the what would be justice would be to gut you and expose you for the heartless little desensitized little shits that you are i'm like yeah. Christ, i don't think a principal could ever really get away with that, that kind of yeah. his theatricality with the scissors is pretty hilarious a little ridiculous i don't know if that's believable that's one thing about this series that i say i gotta love there is there's more than a handful of scenes in all of these movies that really are not very plausible and i don't know if they're really real world or believable but they're believable in this universe and it's funny and it's entertaining so you kind of like overlook it if that makes sense you know what i mean there's just like a few that i don't think would happen in the real world but totally fit the tone and the spirit of the movie and then, and then you can you can tell that uh, Wes Craven knew how kind of silly that that red herring was because he he shows himself in the hallway, Fred the janitor dressed up like Freddy Krueger. <laughs> oh, that was great! Love that too. <laughs> um, and then, and then as soon after that, you got Randy. He he fingers both killers, mm-hmm. and it says it's a it's a basic prom night premise, and then kind of accuses both of them. So so he kind of reiterates. No, this these are the killers, but you still have no idea. See, and you know it's I know it's effective too. I mean, it's hard to gauge whether this is effective, I think, for a lot of horror fans, because I'm sure a lot of horror fans, especially people of my generation, grew up watching Scream and probably don't even remember the first time that they saw it. That, that that's honest truth. It's one of those movies that's so ingrained. But I did watch it with somebody uh back in 2018 who had never seen it. And they were totally did not know who the killer was and were guessing all the way until the big reveal when they revealed that the two killers and they were surprised. So actually I showed it to two different people and they were both very surprised. So that proved to me when I was like, okay, it, it, it is effective. Sometimes I wonder, I was like, I don't even remember the first time I realized that they were the killers. It's been, this movie is so ingrained in my mind. Yeah, because now it's so obvious and it's so easy to see who the killers were. But back when we watched it the first time, we had no idea. No. I mean, we might have guessed at it, but I, I, but if we guessed at it, we moved on to somebody else and probably dismissed it. I was like, oh no, it's too easy. It's too obvious sometimes. Yeah, that, I think that's what it was. He made it too obvious to the point where 
you know, we thought they can't be the killers. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it comes the big party scene. I love that party scene. It takes up a big chunk of the movie. And it was actually uh, one of the most grueling shoots of the thing. Like everybody in the cast, I like, got t-shirts say, saying that I survived scene 118 or something like that because it was so elaborate but uh i love the whole thing the way it's set up the way gail comes in and plants the cameras and then she goes out to her van to watch them and then there's that 30 second delay genius genius it's weird gail weathers even though i know what you mean she doesn't start off very likable she's you she kind of grows on you a lot through, through the franchise in fact i don't think she becomes like truly likable likable until the sequel but even though I don't like her as a person, I like her a lot as a character. I like watching her. I like her performance. And I like um, the dynamic and what she brings to it. And I love um, I love her interactions with David Arquette and Dewey, especially in the first one, because they're so unlike each other and so mismatched and something. And there's something a little charming about their kind of relationship. And it's almost believable how these two polar opposites could kind of be attracted to each other and... Um, there's a a charming quality to it. So even when she's not likable, I still like her performance a lot. And she had to lobby to get this part. She wrote a letter to get this part. They didn't want to cast her because she was in Friends at the time where she's more of like a a nicer character. People thought of her more of a sweetheart. They didn't think that she could be be this mean or this cruel, where she actually wrote a letter to Wes Craven saying that I could be a bitchy character. Please just give me a chance. So she really wanted this to use this as her opportunity to show that I'm more than just like a sitcom actress. I can I can really act and do a different type of character. Yeah, she wanted to do something a little more edgy. Mm-hmm. And then I like how she starts out her relationship with Dewey by like flirting with him just to get the story. Mm-hmm. And then you can you can kind of slowly, subtly see her kind of warm up to Dewey and kind of start uh, having affection for him slowly. It's 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 pretty subtle. But it's there. You could see that she's a little <laughs> taken by his goofy charm, almost because she's in such a th- cutthroat world and something it's prob she probably finds him his naivety and his innocence kind of refreshing yeah and and then you at the party you get that our legendary rose mcgowan garage kill oh yeah it's it's a great fight too because she, she slams him in the face with the refrigerator door and then thro- breaks a bunch of beer bottles on him throws the beer bottles at him but then it ends with i don't know why she tried to gr- crawl through that little pet door but it seemed like she was going to get through it, but she didn't. And then uh, him raising her up all the way up to the top and that gnarly head smash that it shows, it kind of squishes her head like a grape. <laughs> That's cool. That's kill. I mean, I understand what she did because for what her mind is like racing. And for a second, it looks like she might actually be able to get through or get away. But then, no, you, you get that moment and it's great. And I love Rose McGowan in this movie too. I, I don't she's kind of a mean girl but not really if that makes sense uh her, yeah. her dialogue she comes across pretty vapid yeah uh, next to sydney it's almost strange that that's her best friend because she's almost like vapid and empty-headed and very shallow in comparison to her um but she's likable though i think most of these characters are likable even when they're odd and not likable you still like them i don't know if i if that makes any sense because like i it's the same thing with um gail weathers i still like her when she's not likable rose mcgowan i take to her i even find Stu, as obnoxious as he is kind of funny to watch or entertaining and i i like his line delivery his uh especially when it gets to the, the climax and he starts like you hit me with the phone dick and like all yeah. of that shit. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, I I, I love him, dude. And clumsiest killer, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> the major like killers. Like I, I think that was probably kind of refreshing too in '96 because you have like these killers from the '80s slashers like Michael Myers and Jason who are absolutely like implacable. Like it's hard to knock them down. They're not clumsy. They have like an intimidating physicality to them. And then you have uh, Freddy, who is a dream demon, so that's almost so hard to fight because he only appears in dreams. Even Chucky, the little damn doll, is is a lot more efficient and a, than um than Ghostface is. But I think that's kind of a, what lends the movie some of its charm is that it's a much more real world killer than any of the slashers had been before. It felt like actually a human being in a costume, and I can tell you, I wore that costume this past Halloween. I was Ghostface. I don't know how you could kill somebody in something like that or chase people around because it is cumbersome. It is so cumbersome. And I, I like that the clumsy quality and the fact that he's not this like super really good killer who can appear anywhere at any time. It's, he gets knocked down, he gets kicked. You could even hear, oh, like when he gets kicked in the nuts several times. I don't know, it depends on which one, but you hear like the grunts and the pain and everything. It seems real. It, and it makes for some really exciting fights, especially with the girls. Yeah, and, and it it makes it more believable that the girls are getting one up on him, and you you keep thinking that they're going to get him, and then he wiggles his way out of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, in this part of the movie, it came to one part that always rubbed me the wrong way, and still rubs me the wrong way to this day. So first of all, Billy shows up again with Sydney, and he's being a douche again. He's he he actually comes up and scares her, like. She's been through this whole ordeal. She's been attacked by a killer, and you still scare her? <laughs> oh, when he's at the door? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Like, like, why do you deliberately scare her? And then after he does that, shows he, he solidifies what a douchebag he is. Then she decides to have sex with him? I just don't get that. It doesn't fit this awesome final girl character. But- no, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. There's a couple of moments in each and even, like I said, this is like the one thing about the franchise I can say. There's a handful of all of moments in all of the movies that are a little contrived where things happen that don't make sense just to get the characters where they need to get to in order for the story to progress in the way that Kevin Williamson wants it to progress. So yeah, I, I actually agree with you on that. But it's still so much fun, though. Like, what happens after? Yeah. 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 So yeah because it, it makes it so much cooler that in the middle of this scene where you see uh, Nev is about to, or, or uh, Sydney's about to have sex with Billy, you simultaneously go to the party where Randy's explaining the rules to the party. That's always entertaining. And then what's funny to me is when all the party gets up to leave, and it's because they found out that the, that the dead principal is hanging from the goalposts. So everybody leaves the party. So it's, I thought it was such a funny reason to leave those last few characters alone at the house. And then you, you get one. Teenagers. I got to be honest. Maybe I was a nicer kid than most, but I would have shocked me. Even if I didn't like the principal, I would have been disturbed and upset by hearing that. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they find time to throw another red herring in there with Sid's dad, where you think it might be Sid's dad. And then, I love that whole part with the 30 second delay. And then Randy's watching uh, Halloween and he's telling Jamie Lee Curtis, look behind you, look behind you. Meanwhile, Ghostface is sneaking up behind him. They're in the van. 
telling him, look behind you, look behind you. I think it has an extra level of meta to it because he's saying, look behind you, Jamie. And I don't know, this could be a coincidence, but the fact that the actor's name is Jamie also adds another layer of meta. Behind you, Jamie. Behind you. Exactly. I got to say, the way, uh, one thing, I love the, the way that Halloween is used in the movie and how the, the, the music in the movie is used to parallel what's going on. Yes. And it uses the music, like when Dewey burst in, like the perfect music cue comes on for Halloween. And, and that's actually Kevin Williamson's favorite movie. And I don't really think that's a shocker. I think it's totally obvious, obvious by watching that this, that that's his favorite movie. But, and this is another of those implausibilities that you just have to kind of go with, with some of these screen, with the, with the screen movies the way that the movie's playing out doesn't make sense if you've seen Halloween. It goes like like a scene happens in Halloween and as the movie progresses, it's like they're watching the scene over and it's at a different part of the movie. It, because if you know Halloween by heart the way I do, I'm like, the way that Halloween is playing out in this universe is not really how the movie actually plays out. They keep rewinding it and putting it right at the scene that they need just so it could ratchet up the tension. Of, of of what's going on right there but it's a thing that i could forgive one of the many things in these movies where i could say that doesn't really make sense but i could forgive because it's so effective anyway and the, the parallels with halloween and scream are so strong but just so you know it makes no sense that like it jumps to time later and they're still on the same scene in halloween you're like what <laughs> yeah <laughs> but there's like, a, like things like that that happen throughout the the screen movies that I noticed a little bit more this time around when I was just trying to pay attention to the logistics of some things. I'm like, what? That doesn't make sense. But it's so much fun. You kind of forgive a lot of it and it doesn't even matter or doesn't really do anything to undermine its classic status. Yeah, even when you notice it, you don't care. Yeah. Because, it, because everything surrounding you is so good. And that, that leads to right, right to another great fight between Ghostface and Sid right before the killer reveal. And then you have the... the the reveal of the two killers and then they do that whole comedic thing where they stab each other. That that's always funny to me. And then that, and then that classic line, movies don't create cycles. Movies make cycles more creative. It kind of brought everything full circle. So do you think, um, I have to ask this, do you think Billy and Stu were like lovers or something? Because the, the things that they say and the way that Stu hangs on him and like, it's very, homoerotic in the way that they're going and the, even the way that he's like, come on, baby, get it up when he's telling him to stab him and the way that he's like hanging on his shoulders when he's talking to Sydney, like a, like a love. It's, there's, there's something like, I don't, I mean, I could be wrong, but there's, I think there's something going on with those two characters. And I'm, it almost seems like Billy uses that to keep Stu on his side, you know? Yeah. Almost like he <laughs> manipulates it or something, but yeah, I think there's some homoeroticism going on between those two in there. Yeah, and then that great scene where uh, Sid turns the tables on the killers, and she hides and uses the uses a voice changer, the Ghostface Ghostface voice changer, to turn turn the tables. And then she she fights both killers. Such a well such a well choreographed fight that ends with the TV smash on the head. It kind of uh, uh, indicative of the whole meta uh, yeah. idea of the of the whole movie. And then. Uh, the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes to life. So, so they keep the, the meta discussion all the way up to the climax. Mm -hmm. All the way. But, uh, but then the way it ends, it, it has the same very subtle end with just the titles. And then 
a really bad cover of Whisper to a Scream. That's by far the worst part of the whole movie. That <laughs> that ending song, Whisper to a, a Scream, it makes it so dated. But but luckily, it's such a short beginning and ending sequence. <laughs> there's another part where I think it's a little bit harder to notice. But there's a and this is in a lot of '90s movies and '90s movies I love. There these '90s films, and it's the part about them that's aged the worst about a lot of them is they insist on putting these 90s covers and these super 90s covers of classic songs and the um the craft does it at the beginning with that god awful um tomorrow never knows cover by the beatles yes same thing with don't fear the reaper and it's very subtly playing in the background so it's easy not to notice it's the moment where um you first meet uh billy and when he's climbing up through uh climbing up to sydney's window that boom 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 that music that's playing is very subtle Seasons don't fear the real. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it sounds so dated and so weird. So there's a couple of aspects of this that very 90s. And another thing, I could kind of tell that this is from the creator of Dawson's Creek, which is surprising to me because I, I can't stand Dawson's Creek. That, yeah. uh, that the writer of Dawson's Creek wrote such a damn good horror movie, but it still features that kind of 90s teen white teen suburbia that was like a real popular thing with like um beverly hills 90210 and it has kind of the vibe of some of that stuff but it doesn't really hurt it i don't know i guess it just contributes to the fact that it's a teen scream or a teen slasher just little things like that that make it very 90s but still yeah. timeless in so many ways. such a classic film and so ingrained in our culture one of the definitive movies of the 90s i think one of the movies that most defines 90s popular culture yeah, just, just very subtle, small things like that are dated. But other than that, it's a pretty timeless movie. Yeah. I, I, I agree. It's really timeless, um, fun, and exciting from, <clears throat> from beginning to end. So entertaining, so well-written. Uh, it, it's one of those movies that's so damn good at doing everything that it does that even its implausibilities and its flaws just kind of fall by the wayside to the point. Like, eh, whatever. Yeah, and, and if you have the Blu-ray, check out the special features where it has real behind-the-scenes. I love behind-the-scenes like this where it's just a camera just watching Wes Craven and the cast do their thing. I love things like that. I, I learned so much from them, even more than the interviews and stuff. It just, just watching them work, yeah. I found it fascinating. So now we come to a year later in 1997 is Scream 2. So it's once again directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson. And they went, really went all out with the cast on this one. You got uh, Nev, uh, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, and Jamie Kennedy all returning as their characters. Uh, Liev, Liev Shriver returns as Cotton Weary with a much bigger part. I, I think he's actually the best part of part two. Uh, Lori Medcalf was awesome in this as Debbie Salt, the, the journalist. Uh, Timothy. Oh, go on. Timothy Oliphant is Mickey. Ah, I love Timothy Oliphant. I think he was wasted here. Uh, Jerry like O'Connell. Jerry O'Connell is funny. He always plays Jerry O'Connell. He's good in it. Uh, and then you have the guest stars with the small parts. You got Jada Pinkett Smith and Omar Epps in that awesome opening scene. You got Sarah Michelle Gellar, Joshua Jackson, uh, Heather Graham, Rebecca Gayhart, Portia Wait, De Rossi. Is Heather Graham in this movie? She's uh, Heather Graham plays uh, uh, Drew Barrymore's part in the Stab movie. Oh, that's right. That is Heather Graham. Uh, Robert Rodriguez's Stab. 
He directed yeah. all. I mean, they revealed it later in Scream Four, but something I, I already knew is because that was part of like Miramax and Dimension and that whole family of filmmakers. That yeah, that those parts were directed by Robert Rodriguez. And Robert Rodriguez was actually off one of the people initially offered Scream when Wes Craven turned it down at first, but then he they ended up talking him back into it. And uh, but yeah, he almost was one of the people who came pretty close to directing Scream. And then you have uh, Rebecca Gayhart and uh, Portia de Rossi and then Tori Spelling, who was originally supposed to play Sydney, but she didn't get the part. So she comes back to play her in the in the stab movies. And then uh, Luke Wilson has a little small part in it in the stab movie as well. Uh, so some synopsis of this, of this one, two years after the events of the first, Sydney is in college and someone dressed like Ghostface starts killing again. Uh, they changed cinematographers on this one. This one uh, is Peter Deming. He did uh, the awesome Evil Dead 2, great cinematography on that one. Scarecrows, Drop Dead Fred, I love Drop Dead Fred. Lost Highway, that's very impressive. He, he did the camera work on Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Lost Drive Highway came out the same year as Scream 2 also. Yeah, and Mulholland Drive too, both those movies are gorgeous. Oh yeah. Uh, the, the Cabin in the Woods, he filmed Cabin in the Woods, Drag Me to Hell, and a bunch of Twin Peaks. Oh, so this is, so they both, they're both very accomplished cinematographers, though. Yeah. Both, both the directors, uh, the directors, the DPs of part one and part two. And I gotta say, it's pretty seamless. I don't really see, like, it seems like he kind of maintains that kind of very slick visual style that was um, established in the first one. So I don't really think it's too noticeable that there's like a, a switch in, in, um, cinematographers i think it's the most notable and noticeable in part four it's the one part four to me is the one that has a look that is not quite quite like the the, the first three yeah and then you got effects makeup on this one by greg nicotero and Har howard berger only greg nicotero and howard berger are here from uh kmb effects uh robert kurtzman if that's the one i don't know why they didn't use him but uh this one another excellent opening scene with omar epps and jada pinkett smith uh, they go to the premiere of Stab, so you, you kind of continue the, the genius uh, meta dialogue here. And then also another thing that returns from one that they kind of uh, goes through all the rest of the movies, having Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, the song. That's kind of the, the central theme of all the movies. Yeah, I mean, they even say this in the movie, that that's the thing about sequels. Whenever you do a sequel to something that people love, you gotta have to up what people loved about it and like push those elements to the front. And Jesus Christ, that is a meta as hell opening, dude. It's funny. It it starts poking fun at another um cliche in a lot of slasher movies. It's that, and luckily this has been rectified in recent years, that black people die first in horror movies. It's a little unfortunate that it ends up playing out that way, but at least the movie is like smart enough to be aware of it and even poke fun at it a little bit and kind of have fun with it. And that, and then the fact that it's an opening sequence that's mirroring the opening sequence of the original where they're playing out a fictionalized version of a movie that's already fictional to begin with, a fictionalized version. And it's such a cheaper, tawdrier version of what Wes Craven did with the opening screen that it's funny that Jada Pinkett's line where she's like, why is she naked? Why is she butt ass naked? What does that have to do with the plot? And I think that makes it funnier in terms of what slasher movies do and their excesses, because you as a viewer, I'm assuming you've seen Scream if you're watching Scream 2, and if you haven't, then what the hell are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you're aware that that didn't happen. She wasn't even naked. In fact, she was very covered up. She was wearing a turtleneck, like one of the most like 
innocent unrevealing things that you could do and then you have marley shelton i mean why did i say marley shelton heather graham doing her, why did i say marley shelton <laughs> heather graham doing her little sex pot thing you know i don't know you and i dislike you already and it's just it is deliberately like a crappy version of the opening of scream and oh man i i get a kick out of it I, I think it's totally amusing but i was like this is super meta and the fact that red right hand is playing that in their universe the stab movies have the same theme that the scream movies have how do they yeah. get with this meta shit <laughs> so it's funny and then all the while uh jada pinkett smith addressing the suspension of disbelief that you need to watch a lot of horror films and then uh the phone and star 69 is ass yeah <laughs> and then they they, they make in this they little, make yeah go ahead they, they make fun of the stereotype that black people yell at the screen <laughs> yeah but in all fairness everybody's yelling at the screen yeah in this, in this one but yeah she's great in her little bit part her her spiritedness and her her energy i does this sound strange this isn't i like to believe in my head in an alternate universe that tupac would have had um mike epps role if he had lived i don't know why but i can totally see i was like i i've convinced myself personally whether it's true or not that that would have been Tupac's role if he had lived yeah I don't know why that's just something I I love the whole kill in the bathroom with Omar Epps where he kind of hears whispering in the next stall and he puts his ear up to the stall and you you cringe already when he puts his head up to the stall because you know what's going to happen and then sure enough the night goes through his head and I love how uh, Ghostface comes and just kind of sits down next to Jada Pinkett Smith and ends up stabbing her. While he's stabbing her, she's screaming, and everybody's like, yeah, they think it's just another goof. <laughs> I gotta say, I, I really think that's just so well executed, because it's believable that she would be stabbed to death, because the theater is so rowdy and so chaotic that it would slip by, but that moment where she goes up on the screen, like, in front of the screen, and starts screaming, and, like, you could see the shock of the audience, that the, a lot of the people start taking their masks off, and, like, looking, and you, they realize that, holy shit, something really serious just happened right now and then it falls and you notice that it just kind of holds it there for a, for a few seconds like it doesn't just go to like the scream 2 title you see jada pinkett smith like five or six seconds of just silence as you realize that the crowd finally shut the fuck up and realize that something happened I'm really effective again not as um i don't think they're ever going to top the opening of the original scream because it's so damn perfect but this is the way you would follow up and try to do by upping it, making a little bit more chaotic, making a little bit more crazy, upping the meta factor and the humor, and then having several people um, dressed up as Ghostface running around. Uh, totally awesome sequence. I love the opening. I, they all have really good openings, dude. I mean, I, I don't know of any franchise. And I'm really hoping with the new Scream that they keep that tradition. You, you cannot have a Scream movie without a show-stopping, like a, a show-stopping set piece to, to uh, set it off. Yeah, this this great. It's always a great set piece to open the movie, and then you get introduced to these characters that you love, mm-hmm. and it's that that always sets the story into motion. You kind of get caught up where the characters are, and it kind of informs the drama later on in this movie. Like like you see Sid's in college, and then Ghostface calls her, but she ends up finding out it's just a prank, and she's kind of she's kind of clever and on it now, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you see you see Cotton Weary's on TV, and then you find out that he got off because of Gail and and uh, Sydney falsely accused him. So it sets up all the drama right there. So it's a perfect little introduction to these characters that you already know. Didn't Lee Schreiber really luck out yeah. with that tiny ass bit part 
in Scream because he's in it, but you only see like flashes of him on the screen and stuff. And like theoretically, they could have recast any actor they wanted to to play Cotton Weary because you see so little of him in the first one that I don't yeah. know if you could have imagined that it would have ballooned to such a big part in the in the sequels. But the thing in this one, this was always my second favorite after the first one. I felt much differently watching it after this one. After the whole Sid uh, seeing Cotton on TV and 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 uh, seeing that he got off because of Gail and all that, I was excited for how it was setting up. And then it goes straight into the classroom scene with Randy. I thought that was a very ham-handed way to discuss sequels. That Randy's Randy's just in the middle of a of a film class discussing the rules of a sequel. And by the way, the rules he dis- he's discussing do not match what's going on on screen. The 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 kills aren't more elaborate. The story isn't more elaborate. None of the things he talks about it being a sequel happen here. But I then think the set pieces as they go later on are more are a little bit more elaborate than the first one though. But I actually love that scene. I always get a kick out of the conversations that they're having in there, and it works for me. I I love it. I have that whole scene memorized too when they start having their little sequel debates and everything. Yeah, because it it seems to happen so naturally in the first one, and surprisingly, it seemed to ha- happen much more naturally in the third one. Even though it it could have it could have been really bad, but I thought it came off much better than it, than it did on this one. Because just discussing it in a classroom, it, there's no setup to it or anything. They just like we're gonna drop you in this. We're gonna show you Randy, and he's gonna be discussing sequels. But uh, but that goes right into uh, a character that I love. You introduce the reporter Debbie Salt, where she's obsessed with Gail, and I'm like, now we're talking. But then after you introduce her. There's a few scenes in a row of literally nothing but setup. Not very interesting, not very compelling, no really good kills. And then that goes right into Ghostface calling uh, Sarah Michelle Geller. It's an uninteresting conversation. Sarah Michelle Geller is a non-existent character. You don't even know who this chick is when she shows up. It's an uninteresting kill. He just stabs her and pushes her off the balcony. Uh, and then that goes right into Ghostface attacking Sid, another uninteresting fight, poorly choreographed. Uh, it's it's not a good attack or a fight. And still, at this point in the movie, there's still no clues. There's no good red herrings. There's no nothing. They're kind of just going through the motions. And I get it. You're introducing us to these characters. And you're at, at this point, I think I enjoyed it at the time just because I'm watching these characters that I love from the first one interact with each other. And it's always fun. But without that first one, without introducing them in the first one, if I was to watch two on its own, it would not be very entertaining at all outside of these few really impressive scenes. See, the reason that it works for me is because I think at this point it's the sequel. The characters are kind of established who they are. I think the most ridiculous thing about it, to, to be very clear, it doesn't actually, and this is something that is like completely consistent with some of the implausibilities of the Scream franchise, it doesn't make sense that they're all at the same spot. All of the fan favorites just so happen, it just so happens that Sydney's going to the same college and uh, Randy, okay, maybe I could buy that. Then Gail just happens to show up. Yes, it makes sense, but I think it might take a little bit more while to get her. It makes sense that she would be jumping on it. And then Dewey comes there all at the same time within the same scene. I find that, to be quite frank, quite frank with it, it's, it's implausible. And I don't think that makes any sense that all of these characters are here. But I ha- have to, to say I disagree. This is actually still my second favorite one. And I like it almost as much as the first one, which, which may surprise you. 
I think that one thing that I do think that this movie is, is good at or what is, there's a couple of things that I think that are better about Scream 2 than Scream 1. I don't think it's a better movie, but I think the performances are a little bit more confident this time around. I think that like, um, as far as like Courtney Cox and David Arquette and um, Jamie Kennedy, Jamie Kennedy, and to a lesser extent, maybe Nev Campbell, but I think overall, they feel like they fell into the grooves of their characters a lot more easily this time around. And there's a more lived in quality to them. And I think this is where it starts to take on the classic qualities of it as a franchise, as opposed to it just being a classic one-off horror movie. And I really like the performances here. And I think that they do a little bit better this time around. And I really love the characters and I love the performances. And I realized that's what made me love this movie so much all these years, but watching it back, saying you, you gave us all these great characters and then there's literally scene after scene after scene of setup and then none of the kills are interesting and the, and the fights aren't very well choreographed. It's, it's, I, it I doesn't feel... That I really like the kill scenes. I like um, Sarah Michelle Gellar's part in it. And this is part of just me, this is just part of the slasher formula. There's always these one-off characters that you don't really care about and that's kind of what it's spoofing. But I rarely think that they're usually that, that well acted or well, put, put, or, or well put, put off. I love the sequence with uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar and the conversation and her going inside and out and kind of being scared. And the reason she's there is, I mean, obviously not everybody is that important to the plot, but it's because that they're, they're um, mimicking the murders of the original. It's mostly because of her name. So for me, that plot point works. It doesn't feel very forced, but I like it. Yeah. And so, yeah, see, again, it needs the first one in order to be entertaining. That's I what I didn't like about but, this one. I guess, but I would say that's a bigger problem in part two, in part three. Part three even does a repeat of what Sarah Michelle Gellar is in the form of the Jenny McCarthy character. And we'll get to that when it's done, but it's like a failed recreation of what they were doing in Scream 2 with that sequence. And say, I thought the opposite. I thought the Jenny McCarthy scene was much better than the Sarah Michelle Gellar scene. The, the fighting was better, the kill was better, it was more brutal, it felt more dangerous. But with, with Sarah Michelle Gellar, he kind of just stabbed her and pushed her out the window. Couple times, but it was still more brutal. All, she ever, all that Jenny McCarthy did is fall over and she gets stabbed off screen. By the way, Scream 3 has no kills that take place. You don't see the stabs except in one scene at the beginning in the opening sequence. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that, but it actually doesn't show any uh, violence. It doesn't have any single memorable kill scene in it at all. But yeah, I like it. Like For me, what makes this work is that it seemed to me after Wes, like after Wes Craven, which he did um, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which I loved, and I think over the years it's become a cult classic, but it wasn't really well received at the time. It was a bomb. I think the movie he made after that was Vampire in Brooklyn. I'm not 100% sure uh, what it was, but he made a movie between Wes Craven's New Nightmare and a movie between Scream. And when he did Scream, it kind of brought him back and revitalized his career. And I think in this one, what I like about it is I could see the confidence of direction in this movie. This movie for me, at least the impression that I get off of it, especially watching again over the years, is like exciting and thrilling set piece after set piece, nonstop tension, thrills, excitement. I love so many of the scenes in here. Besides the theater sequence, I think the car sequence and the murder of the two agents is one of the tensest moments in the whole movie. And one of the fucking best pieces of lore is right after those cops are making a joke, they get attacked. Then they go through that wild thing where he's like on the car 
and then I don't know it's like a pipe that goes through his head is so fucking brutal and is like actually shocking I think it's more brutal than anything that's in the first movie and it kind of shocked me granted it doesn't come through Ghostface but I think it's kind of one of those amusing things where like a kill becomes graphic because of the circumstances not because the killer had killer um did any uh killer did anything in particular but I also think that and when I watch this with a couple of people the the scene where the, um where Sydney and her friend uh have to crawl out uh have to crawl out over Ghostface is the most tense nail-biting sequence for me in the entire series it's that uh, that tension and that feeling that you have of like what it would be like where you're you're really scared you're crawling over the front seat and you don't know if you might get stabbed holy shit that was such an intense sequence um what what else and see that's that's what this movie was for me was moments like that the, the things that i love about this movie was moments and I, I actually think the climax was better in in part two than it was in part one uh one of the killers was better the other killer wasn't wasn't that good at all but uh that's that's what i didn't like about this it, it felt very uneven it felt rushed it felt like kevin williamson didn't have a whole lot to say in this one it seemed that the I think it nothing, no, nothing was nothing was very well crafted as we go from scene to scene. Oh, I disagree with that strongly. I think this is all right. This is for me. Scream Two is one of the most exciting, stylish, and well-directed slashers I could think of. Slasher movies, which I love, but a lot of them are corny and they they kind of like fluctuate in quality. But I have a very particular fondness for the slasher subgenre. And it is kind of a wonky subgenre when you think about it. A lot of the, the premises are very thin, but this takes what those slasher does and directs all and takes all of those themes that would be typical in slasher movies and gives them this expert polish and this expert uh, direction where tension is comp always constantly being ramped up. And I think there's a number of implausibilities in, in, in this movie, more so than in the first one but it zips by so quick that I don't like, I feel like there's not really much time, at least for me to think about them because I'm so excited by what I'm seeing and scene after scene uh, is just nonstop tension and white, kn white knuckle thrills. At least that's, that's the impression I get off of it. I also think it's a little bit funnier in some ways. I like all of the conversations that the characters have. I think the dialogue is pretty whip smart as it was in the first one. And there's just like, to me, a confidence in the direction of this movie that is just very rare for slasher movies to have this much energy and this much style and this much territorial braggadocio thrown into it the way this one does. To, to me, it was, it was well-crafted as a movie overall. It looked good. It presented the characters that we love very well, but it didn't, I don't think it added anything. I don't think it, it it really didn't do anything more impressive than the first one besides that climax. Uh, there, was, there was no like clever red herrings. There was no clever clues of who the killer was. There was no nothing. And then by the time we get to the, this is a scene that a lot of people hate is a Jerry O'Connell doing the Tom Cruise Top Gun thing and singing to Sydney in the, the uh, cafeteria. It was so cheesy, cheesy, but literally at this point, I thought it was really the only real character interaction so far in the movie. The only thing that felt like something different, something real. And then uh, that goes into Randy doing another great guess of who the killer is, but it's so poorly done. I was, I was almost embarrassed by that scene for, for Jamie Kennedy because he was like saying, oh, maybe it's a girl. 
and then maybe it's a journalist oh god and then maybe it's a film geek i'm like shut up dude there was nothing to warrant what he was saying he was just throwing these these ham-handed clues out there why it could be anybody this this time around and i think that that that's what what i like about it is that it feels a little bit more you're right it doesn't have a it doesn't have the same red herrings or like the kind of clever clue-ins that you get from the first one but i think that for me that's what kind of works in this film film's favor and i love that scene like i i i just i couldn't disagree more i think that's just a way of showing that it could be anybody and i think that randy as far as i'm concerned is as classic a character as and as really crucial for, uh, for the series as um, Dewey and uh, Gail in terms of Scream's identity as a franchise and what Scream does that's so different than um, than other horror franchises and the reasons that they revived it. So it, it kind of gives the feeling that anything could happen. And I think that kind of culminates with uh, Randy's death, which to me still, it bugs me a little bit. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not sure that it, it was the best decision but as a scene unto itself, it works so well because it kind of lets you know that uh, that this time around, just because you're attached to a character because you like somebody, that doesn't mean that they're guaranteed to survive. And I love the scene where uh, I love that scene when they're going through the park, when they're looking for people on the cell phones. It's a much harder to solve mystery than what the than what the first than what the first one is. And I think the char- the the killers are a lot more careful and a lot more deliberate and because they are more periphery characters as opposed to being directly uh plugged into um sydney's life the way that they were in the first one it makes them easier for them to maneuver around and makes their um it, it makes their their machinations a little bit easier to get away with granted their machinations and some of what they do are implausible i think all of them to a degree have like an implausibility in terms of some of the character motivations but I, all of that works for me though, for those reasons. And I love the first part of that scene when Ran- Randy gets a call from Ghostface while they're all looking for him in the courtyard. Cool. But first of all, Randy would know not to, not to back up against that van. It's a stupid character decision from a clever character. And the kill of a major character was not shown or given any weight whatsoever. I thought that was a, a, a so cheap to take a, a scene like that was building up so well, and then just have him do something as stupid as backing into the van. But but that's the thing, and I noticed this is a, a criticism that you have with a lot of slasher movies and moments like this, and I I disagree with you almost every time because you have this with Halloween Kills, which is not even a movie I'm a big fan of. When uh, the moment when they're coming down the stairs and you don't like the way that she reacts. I think when people are in tense situations, they make stupid decisions. And I can speak from personal experience where my blood is pumping and I'm in heightened in situations. I've done things that were stupid and to my detriment. And I think that's realistic. I don't think that just because characters are clever doesn't mean that they don't get caught up in the moment. They don't let their guard down. They don't do something stupid. And I could see him getting so intense. And the fact that they're out in the open it kind of gets your guard down. Like the chances are that you're going to get hacked up or hacked to death at any moment, like in the, in broad daylight is, is something that would give you a little bit more confidence in that you're not going to get killed. Maybe a little, a little tense, but I think that clever people don't always make good decisions in tense situations. And I can speak from personal experience why that doesn't bother me. It may not have been the best decision, but I think it works. And I think that's kind of, um, it's realistic. 
And I'm just not comfortable making an excuse for Randy doing that if if he's the one of the most clever ones and and he explains like the said, rules. I, I, you know. I, like I said, I'm I consider myself a fairly smart person and I've done stupid things and it's not an excuse. It's just reality. I've been caught up in bad. Yeah, but, but but you're saying you're saying this is okay because it's true to real life, and then you're saying these other these other uh, things are okay because they're completely fake and and completely implausible. So it's like going both ways. It, it just seems like excuses. I don't. I don't it's not an excuse. It, that's that's why it works. And those are two separate things. I think the implausibilities come with more of like the killer's motivations and in terms of what they get away with and how they're able to maneuver and not and how the characters react that's something i consider separate but that's why it works for me and i don't see a problem with it at all and and i don't like the the decision of not showing his death like that's a major character that you really feel that death so they should have shown it to us uh, shown us a little more at least not completely been off camera but maybe they could have been a little bit more and maybe it didn't need the moment where those beat uh break dancers or whatever they are like like dance in front of the van while he's getting stabbed to death that's kind of dumb to be quite honest that's it's, it's kind of goofy but maybe it could have been done a little bit better but i think it works and it it, it doesn't bother me well for me by far the most interesting parts of the whole movie involve cotton weary i love his performance i love the way he's worked into this story and the way his character is expanded but his whole story doesn't it now seems like it's not even a part of the central narrative. It, it, they throw it in there as like an afterthought. And I'm like, wait a minute, go back to Cotton. I want to see what he's doing. So overall, I thought it was too much whodunit discussion and not enough crafting of a whodunit. You know, they're, they're discussing all these different aspects of, of a whodunit, but they aren't using any kind of craft to craft a whodunit. And then I feel that Scream, the original, is better than all its imitators and it has a lot of imitators but scream 2 is just another imitation oh, I, no. I don't th i don't no, no, i don't no. think that's i, think I don't think there's anything that helps this stand on its own i mean yeah you could argue that you can't but i mean it's the same thing you could say for a lot of great movies i mean i'm this is a totally off the wall example but it's a movie they discussed in there the godfather part two which most people would consider the godfather part two a masterpiece and a great film however that movie does not work the same way and its tragic consequences are not understood without the first one. It doesn't have the same power. Does that make The Godfather Part Two less of a film? No, because sequels have to build and they're taking off what you already know. So I don't really see it that way or I don't but, see it the way that you do. Yeah, but they're, they're taking off what we already know, but there was a whole lot of setup. You know, if, if you're going to go simple like that. Getting the people to get there, which admittedly is implausible. It doesn't make sense that they would all be there. But once they're there, I like what they do. I like what they do with them. I also find the, the motivations a little bit more ridiculous this, the, this time around, especially with, with the uh, Timothy Oliphant. Both of their, their motivations are actually kind of silly and a little bit far-fetched. But... It kind of goes with the spirit of the movie, and I think all of them, except for part three, have really silly motivations for what they're doing. In part three, it's com something completely different, but they all have kind of ridiculous motivations. It's part of the Scream franchise, but I, I can swallow it. I'm not saying that this is a perfect movie. I recognize its flaws, but for me, it's so entertaining. It's so, exci so exciting, so stylish, so funny. It bounces around so quickly. 
and it just has like impressive set piece after impressive set piece that every time I watch it, I kind of like it a little bit more as, as uh, the, the, the more I see it. This one actually gets better to me with age. Scream is like eternal for me. It never, I wouldn't say it gets better, but it's always as classic as it always is. This time I always notice things that I like a little bit more about it the, set, uh, uh, the, the new time around. And for me, I think it's a spectacular slasher movie. For me, it's a great example of direct, uh, Wes Craven's directorial skills. It's fast, it's funny. It's one of the most, for me, and I know you're gonna strongly disagree with me on this. It's, for me, it's one of the best horror movies of the 90s. It's one of the mm. best horror sequels and just overall one of the most exciting slasher movies I could think of. I, I think it was actually, I, I mean, I still liked it. I mean, the, the things I'm complaining about is, are just things that make it less entertaining for me than the others. To me, this is the, this is the worst out of all of them. I thought, I thought three and four were both, uh, one, three, and four were all, both, were all better than two. Okay, but, that's uh, fair, but you know, that's a highly uncommon, that's a, that's a very unusual take. Yeah, but uh, the, the car crash sequence that you, that you mentioned with uh, Sydney and her friend in the car, I, I love that sequence. I always have, I, I always thought that was the central thing that really made this work. If it wasn't for this scene, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it much at all. But it's a really cool sequence, uh, really high tension. It makes your skin crawl thinking uh, Ghostface is going to wake up any minute. But I have a small complaint about that one. Uh, Sid could have killed him or incapacitated him, but instead she ran and then decided to go back. But that's a small complaint. But It's a, uh, it's a stupid decision. And, and let's be honest, her friend was killed because Sid, Sidney did not make a smart decision. There's, like I said, I really feel, and it's the one weird thing about Sidney Prescott is she's a, a uh, such, she's probably one of the most strong and then one of the most fight, I don't want to put it like, the most resilient of scream queens. I, I would say so even more so than, than Jamie Lee Curtis is, I mean, except for maybe in Halloween 2018 where she turns into this hardcore badass. But when you think about like, Jamie Lee Curtis in the original Halloween, her going up against Michael Myers, she felt a lot more fragile than Sydney River yeah. does going up against Ghostface. But she still makes dumb decisions like sleeping with Billy, like going back and leaving her friend unprotected. There's several occasions where it's just like, God damn it, Sydney, you should know better. But it's part of the franchise. And again, I when people you could say it's making excuses, but I think it's something that is across the board all of these movies have implausibilities and i think it's a little bit implausible that all of it always leads back to sydney but kind of is what the franchise is so i can accept i i can accept it on that level but yeah. the movies have a lot of like things that i i don't know if in real life these characters would have been able to pull off what they pull off i don't know if any of the characters would have gotten far whether it's billy stew um, Debbie Salt, um, Roman in part three, or Emma Roberts in part four, I have a hard time buying. But the movies are so damn fun and so exciting that I can kind of overlook some of those things. It's one of those movies, those, those series where I started to notice the flaws and the implausibilities of a lot of, this, of a lot of the series more on watching them on this time around in a way that I never noticed before. Yeah. Uh with with me like this one there was there was actually a good red herring in it but it was way late 
in the movie. It was when Gale finds cotton with blood on his hands. Like, all right, now, now that's a great red herring. And then that leads into Sid in the theater. I thought the set was pretty cool. I thought when they turned on all the, the props and stuff in the theater, that was really cool, really chaotic. And, uh, but I thought that f- reveal of the first killer was really crunk- clunky. It was, a thro- it was another throwaway character. Uh, he did it, although I love Toby Theoli fan, I, th- I think he was wasted here. It was a bad imitation of Stu from the original. It just seemed like he was trying to act like Stu, and it would just look like he was trying to act unhinged. But the, the part with him pretending that uh, the boyfriend is his partner, I thought that was pretty cool to th- well, kind of throw Sid off. Yeah, to admit, he's a little bit too cool to be imitating uh, Stu. I don't know yeah. why Timothy Oliphant has already a naturally cool guy character. You actually reminded of something, me of something else. Just, just to rewind a little bit, you're talking about the theater. That's another one of the sequences that I love. That's, to me, is such a brilliantly directed sequence is when Sydney's theater director talks her back in and gives her that speech to go back and perform and find the strength within herself. And when she's dancing amongst all the people, uh, all the people in the play, and they have like masks that are kind of similar to Ghostface, almost like more ancient versions of that type of look or archetype that I'm pretty sure it's based on um, Edward Munch's The Scream. You've seen that piece of artwork. Oh, yeah. The Scream. Yeah. Where Ghostface actually shows up and you see her perspective getting confused and dazed and disoriented and, and like where she doesn't know where to turn. And then just as she bumps into him and falls back, he kind of runs off and it gets like caught up in the chaos of it. I love that sequence. That's another one I, I forgot to mention. That, that whole theater is actually one of the coolest things about it because it allows for these like little set pieces like that, whether it's Sydney acting out or the killers at the end. Um, but yeah, I love Laurie Metcalf though. She's yeah. a lot better than, than, than Timothy Oliphant. And I oh, love like kills him and um, kind of calls bullshit on his motives. He's like, uh, my, 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 votive, my motive isn't so 90s. It's just good old-fashioned revenge. Yeah, and, and in contrast to how bad I think the first killer reveal was, that's how good I think the second reveal was. A great reveal, a much better villain, uh, Lori Medcalf, much better unhinged performance. She really seemed like she was unhinged. A much better fight with Sid and an awesome end sequence because of Cotton with the whole, the way Cotton comes back into it. So I, that I, whole thing like saved it for me. I like the choices that they made with Cotton in this one too. What I found very interesting about his character and what most movies would choose to do with that character and what this decides to do instead. Because in the first one, he is wrongly accused of something he didn't do. He could come across as a sympathetic character, and I think that would be the easiest thing like to write is somebody trying to get back, you know, somebody trying to get back to their life and somebody trying to like reclaim their reputation and everything, which he does. I mean, he is like that, but you still get the sense that he's kind of sleazy. He's kind of power hungry and he's kind of a fame seeker. And I like that they took that ballsy decision because as like, just because somebody was wrongly accused of a murder and they didn't deserve to be executed does not mean that that person has good motivations. It doesn't mean that they were a good guy or that they're particularly likable. He is such a seedy little bastard in this movie. I mean, he like his moment when he's pulling Sid to the side in the library, when she, her mind yeah. is else and he starts talking about Diane Sawyer and doing that obnoxious like knock on her head and then Excuse me, a little fl- everybody's favorite victim, fucked up little uh, lovable Sidney Prescott, and his his arrogance with the cops. And by the way, only a white guy could ever be that arrogant. Yeah, the way that he is. I thought it was a very ballsy 
a choice to make that character not as likable or as sympathetic as you would think he would be given his character character history because i feel like most sequels would have just treated him much more sympathetically than they do this time around and even though he says you know i never would have hurt you i get the feeling that there is a part of him that was considering siding with debbie salt with 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 billy's mom in order to like get what he wants in that moment where she's like it's yours so i i thought he was a really interesting character in that way and i kind of like what they what they did with him by making him a little bit of a fame hunky a fame hungry sleazy sycophant and uh he's great in it i love his performance and and even in that that awesome climax where he's he's got the jump on laurie medcalf he could easily just save sid right there but he makes sid agree to make him famous before he'll save her <laughs> yeah so, yeah i, yeah, I, re I really really dug his character but um yeah, I like this movie a lot. I guess we feel differently about it, but you still liked it. I can tell that you still enjoyed it. It's just more complaints. But for me, it's just such a fighting, uh, an exciting and fun movie. And it is more flawed than Scream, but for me, it's just so entertaining and so well done and so funny and so tense that every time I watch it, it kind of leaves my heart racing a little bit after. I start well, thinking about some things that are implausible, but it's a movie that just in the moment leaves my heart racing so much. Well, like I, like I said, I've always thought as two as the second best of the whole franchise, but I think it hurt it watching it for me, watching it right after the first one. Because I watched the right first after, one. Like a double feature? No, I, I watched the first one oh. one night and then watched the second one the next night. So it was just the, the step down was so glaring to me at that point. But this one had enough sequences like the car crash sequence and the climax to to save it and, and make it a really cool entertaining, entertaining entry for me. But just compared to the others watching them all together, I, I thought it was more clunky than the others. I, I thought that it's had characters we already love going through the motions, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it was with every st story beat, which, which you know, made me painfully aware that it paled in comparison to the, to the original, except for the Lori Medcalf climax, which is, I thought was better than the first. Um, and you know that's that, that that's actually kind of funny that 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 I like this so much and you don't like it as much. That's the part I disagree. I actually like the the climax. I think maybe Scream 2's climax is a little more exciting in terms of what's going on, but there's something about Stu and Billy's sick relationship and the way that they keep stabbing each other and like that. Um, I don't think it's as exciting, but it gets under my skin more when um, Billy keeps stabbing Stu over and over. And even though a lot of it happens off screen, you just hear the cuts and you like see him heaving and stuff where it's not as exciting, but it feels heavier, if, if that makes sense. And it's, it's heavier, but it's also more comedic. That's true. It, which it, is it, crazy. <laughs> it's more comedic. But yeah, um, I love Scream 2. For me, fantastic movie. Uh, I'm a big fan of Scream 2. So the the biggest surprise for me of this whole rewatch of the franchise is how much I love Scream 3. I always thought it paled in comparison to all the others, including 4. But this time, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I, I saw the flaws. There's even a couple hokey parts that the second part didn't have. But I still liked it. I, I thought it was more fun than the, than the second part. I thought the fights were better choreographed. I thought the, the kills were better choreographed. Uh, this one was directed by Wes Craven again. But this one was written by someone different. That's why it has a completely different feel to it. This one was written by Aaron Kruger, 
He wrote Arlington Road, uh, The Ring Remake, A Skeleton Key, and he's writing the new Top Gun. Uh, this one brings uh, Nev and Courtney Cox, David Arquette back uh, from the first two. Uh, I loved Parker Posey in this. Uh, Lee Schreiber comes, comes back as Cotton Weary briefly in a, good, a really good opening scene. Uh, I have to met, mention Roger Jackson, who plays the, the ghost face voice through the whole thing. He's a big part of what makes this, these movies great. Uh, I really like Patrick Dempsey as the detective Mark Kincaid. Uh, Scott Foley is Roman, the director of the, of the Stab movie. Uh, a nice appearance by Lance Henriksen. Uh, Jamie Kennedy makes a small appearance as Randy. And then uh, had uh, small parts from Emily Mortimer, uh, Jenny McCarthy, Carrie Fisher, and Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes. I thought that was such a weird cameo with Jay and Silent Bob on the set, on the studio's lot. <laughs> Hey, news check, Connie fucking Chong. Hey, Connie, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. That seems great. I, I love that. It, I don't know if that makes sense, being there, to be quite honest, because it's not like they're filming Jay and Silent Bob, which I guess they are because they're in a studio a lot, but it's like they're still the characters. Like, they walked out of the movie, not like they walked out of filming the movie. It looks like the <laughs> characters from uh, Clerks just wandered into it. I, I don't think it makes any sense, but I it's so goofy and it always makes me giggle that I don't really care that it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and just to see uh, Courtney Cox give him the finger and he's, him not understanding, like, what, what did I say? Is that news? Fucking Chong. Such a weird, so, such a pretty weird cameo. Yeah, it's strange and goofy, but I nerded out on it still because I love those guys. But uh, on this one, someone dressed like Ghostface terrorizes Sydney and her friends again. This time they're in Hollywood on the set of the film Stab 3 based on the Woodsboro murders. Uh, Peter Deming returns as cinematographer, uh, and there's an another great opening scene. Uh, I don't think it was as good as one or two, uh, so it's not as perfect as one, or as quite as cool as two, but it, I thought it was definitely better crafted than the opening of two. Uh, what it lacks in suspense, I think it makes up for in excitement. I, I think if, if Scream and Scream 2 didn't have like such blow your blow your socks off openings, this would have easily, people would have been shitting themselves over the opening for this movie. It, it's like, I, it kind of does something a little bit similar to the first, not quite, but the first one. And it's really good. It just, there's something about the exquisitely mounted tension in the first one. And the second one, while obviously it, it's not as good as the opening of the first one, it makes up for with it makes up for it with its the chaos and how much is going on and the fact that there's like three or four things going on it feels a little bit more chaotic and tense this one is just a really damn good opening sequence uh, not not as perfect or not as inventive as the other two but it's impressive and it's how you should open a it's how you should open a screen movie and it's my favorite part of this movie is is, is the opening sequence and it's another one where it, it's kind of ballsy to make Cotton such a big character in part two and then kill him right off at the beginning of part three. I thought was a very interesting thing to do with that character. And he's still that um, fame-seeking, uh, money-hungry sycophant that he was the first time around. And it, it almost made uh, Ghostface feel more dangerous to me because it feels like he was a more formidable, like it seems like Cotton should have been able to take him, but he couldn't. Mm -hmm. he, he, he just seems so formidable and so like it's it, it, this in, in this one ghostface became one of those killers where if he's in the room somebody's getting hurt 
Like he feels dangerous. He feels like he's going to hurt somebody bad. But the, the only two things in this movie I thought were actually bad was Gail's bangs and Creed. <laughs> I know so there's, there's some musical selections that aged in the first two. <laughs> Rap, nothing like the third. You know why? It's the new metal era. Yes. And why is there a, this is, I heard saw somebody pointed this out online and I have to bring it up. On that stab set, or it was stab three, I believe, they go to great pains to recreate thoroughly um, Sydney's house in Woodsboro, where it looks like the exact same thing. And then they replace one of the posters. I think it was like, I forgot, it was some girl group, and they replace it with the Creed poster. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I was like, Sydney does not have a Creed poster in her room, dude. She's yeah. not that dorky. <laughs> And look, that's that's even a stupid thing to complain about. Uh, that's not even a flaw of the movie, really. But maybe it's just a personal thing that when I see it, I'm like, ah, blur that shit out. It's not. <laughs> no, Sydney's too cool for Creed. I'm sorry. Yeah. But th- that and Gail's bangs, I, they're just so distracting through the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of my problems <sighs> with this one is that I, other than the opening scene, it has some good moments of suspense because Wes Craven's such a good director, but I didn't really like any of the kill scenes in this movie. And to be fair, I don't even think it's fully per- the fault of the filmmakers and the people involved. A- at the time this came out, and th- there was this ripple effect, and we've talked about it before, of the Columbine shootings that happened in 99. Um, a lot of studios and a lot of uh, people started caving into the um, pressures of uh, the idea that movies influence uh, that movies like kind of influence people to be violent in the real world, which is kind of ironic for a franchise like this, since they kind of poke fun of that in the first movie. But it, it other than like the first opening scene where you see Cotton get stabbed, pretty much every stab scene takes place either out of the frame or behind somebody's back, and they really were tried to de like take the violence and the gore down, and it was largely because they didn't want to. Um, have any controversy because of everything that was going on with Columbine and it's one of the reasons that they went out of the way to not have any teen victims which I actually don't think it's a flaw I don't really care that they're not teen victims at this 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 time around I think that's fine the franchise has got to switch things up so they're more adult villains in this one um so they couldn't have any teens getting killed in this movie and they had to seriously take down the gore and I think for me, that's where a lot of the kill scenes suffer as a slasher movie. Uh, the, the suspense sequences building up to the kills are good because Wes Craven directs them really well. But it's just, and I just don't think it has any memorable actual kills when it gets to like the actual kill. And I think that was one of the, the, the issues for me. None of them were memorable. I felt this was more graphic and more violent. Because the, the the fights were more believable, that they, they had more impact. Where the first one, it just seemed like they were. I mean, the second one, they're just going through the motions. But this one, it it seemed more impactful. And and I don't think they they showed as many on screen kills, but I thought they showed more gore in this one than the first one. Maybe not as it's happening, but I thought they showed more gore in this one. I seemed very un. I mean, not that it didn't seem not. It's obviously violent. It's people getting uh-huh. to death. But I just. I didn't care for, other than the opening sequence, I didn't care for a single kill scene in this one. 
I, I just, it, it didn't work for me. It just felt too defanged. And one of the interesting things about, about the movie is about its production and how constantly it was written, rewritten while they were doing it and how they were making changes. And some of the imprints of the original script are on screen three. And I think there's, there's a problem with that. For one thing, the original script had Angeline, the, the one who was playing Sydney's, um, the one who's playing Sydney in Stab 3, um, re replacing Tori Spelling. She was actually meant to be the killer with Roman. And it was part of the script deep into shooting. So if you notice, there are constantly scenes with her where she's not present conveniently every single time that Ghostface com comes up, except when she gets killed. That's when she runs into Ghostface for the first time. But they deliberately mislead you several times to think that she's the killer. But the way that it's directed and the way that it's filmed, it's meant for her to be the killer. That's why she comes uh, after the house explodes. She comes out of the corner saying, what's going on? And she's kind of not believable and they're all kind of looking her weird. Or when Sydney catches her in the bathroom, or just the fact that she just so happens to escape and never be around, I think it's noticeable. And I think it becomes very noticeable in the climax. And this is what the, the problem I have with the climax. And I'm willing to admit some of my problems with I have with this movie are inevitable, not, not because of the filmmakers, it's just because of decisions that they had to make. Uh, Scream 3, the climax, it seems to me very implausible because now Ghostface has the ability to be everywhere all at once and cross very short distances in a highly unbelievable amount of time. He's in this part of the house, he's in that part, he's here, he's there. And the reason it's doing that is because when they filmed it, that's actually supposed to be two killers. So if you look at it from that point of view, that makes total sense that the ghost face could be here and in the next scene be here. And Roman could be doing this while ghost face is still doing, doing that. And, uh, and it's filmed that way. And I think the fact that it's, that there's only one killer just makes that climax very hard to buy. He kind of starts to like, it gives the effect of giving him the supernatural ability that he'd never possessed in the, or the, the moniker never possessed in the sequels where now he's everywhere all at once and he can be anywhere at any time, almost to the point where it's like Michael Myers or Jason, but he doesn't have like that mystique or the quality of Michael or Jason to kind of justify it where they're borderline supernatural characters or, more than human. Roman is not more than human. And I just, it just, to me, I, that's one of the reasons that I never understood why Ghostface was everywhere all at once until I found that out. And I was like, ah, that makes sense. What you're actually seeing is two killers, but when they get to the, the climax, it's just one killer. And I think that's a little bit of a problem for me anyway. It just loses some of what made the original two scre screams kind of grounded is Ghost faces a bill. Yeah, he is intimidating, like you said, where you feel like somebody's gonna die. But I just didn't like that he could appear everywhere at, at once. And it's because as it's filmed as it's two killers, and then they changed it like right at the last minute and threw in a death scene for Angeline. And it just makes the climax a little implausible for me. Yeah, and and another problem I had uh with it was Sid's dream sequences. Didn't they seem out of place. They were kind of hokey compared to the rest of it. it. If it wasn't for that, I would have enjoyed this movie even more. And, and that's another thing. It's, and that's a lot of the stuff is like, it's weird yeah. because it's similar to the problems that I have with um, way off different movie, but Spider-Man 3. Uh, seems like a weird comparison, but it's not. But it's both the case 
where the studio is constantly making decisions that the filmmakers didn't necessarily want, or let's be more specific, the Weinsteins, shoving their nose in and uh, throwing in another screenwriter. I forgot who the other one, the other screenwriter is, but Aaron Kruger didn't write those supernatural sequences with like Sydney's mom and stuff like that. That adamant element was added by another screenwriter, I forget who it was, who was hired to kind of give it a polish. And that's like an aspect that kind of interested them was the Maureen Prescott thing. So the second script polished added those sequence, it, sequences in. And it just seems like Wes Craven is in those sequences is like those dream sequences are almost like a lesser version of what he was doing in A Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't think any of them work. And I think they could all be chopped and the movie would flow a little bit better without them. Yeah, but I do like what they culminated in because the dream sequences kind of culminated into adding that part with her, where she thinks it's her mom with the sheet over the bloody sheet over her head walking towards her. It made, it made for a really cool scene, but like you said, when it turns out to be one killer, it's completely implausible that, that he would, he would cause he was just in the other room when she goes into that room and sees her mom with the sheet on her. And, and I think that opens this movie up to so many flaws that there's imprints of what it was supposed to be in the movie. And because that's not what it is, it makes so many other things not work and you can't really blame the filmmakers for that because they were not filming it with the idea that roman was the sole killer so as far as they were no, they were filming it's plausible so I, I i'll give it that but still for me the finished product is still the finished product and what it is and there's too many things that interfered with this that kind of bugged me and i noticed them more this time around and it kind of clarified things for me when i started looking into it and finding out why a lot of these decisions were made why the gore was cut down, why the killer could be everywhere, why Angeline is always never present conveniently at any point in time when the killer appears. So many things that if they would have just stuck with the original ideas that could have, those actually could have been fixed and some of that could have been a little bit more plausible. Yeah, and, and this one had hokey scenes, hokey scenes that I actually seen as flaws. And it's a much more flawed film than part two but I thought it was just more fun. Okay. They're, just, they're just throwing more at us, more mystery. They're throwing more mystery at us. They're throwing more red herrings at us. They're throwing more funny characters at us. Like, like uh, Parker Posey playing Gail and then her uh, facing off against Gail Weathers. I thought that was comedy gold. Every time they were on the screen together, I laughed my ass off. Okay, that's another problem I have with this movie. It's not that Parker Posey. I, I'll be honest, other than Parker Posey, who I think is great in this movie, I love her. In fact, I get disappointed because I kind of always wish that she survived this movie. I, I really think she would have been a cool element for the rest of the franchise. That's just my uh, thing, but she fits in so naturally. I didn't like any of the new characters. I thought they were just, I didn't care about any of them. I thought they had like the, the guy who was playing Dewey, um, the guy who was playing the Randy character, um, Jenny McCarthy I didn't care for they all to me leave the impression of wet mops I didn't find any of them remotely interesting or likable or I didn't care when they got killed and to top it off their kill scenes I don't think were very memorable either way but Parker Posey I love I love her line delivery I love everything that she does like you said with um Courtney Cox I think that's one of the best elements of the movie is the humor that plays out I love her line like the things that she says the uh, um you like i'm ever gonna win an award playing you and her yeah. <laughs> dramatic she has like the this quality of like 
those Hollywood actresses that think very highly of themselves and over-dramatize every moment. And that moment where she like reaches down and like, who, who dies next in the script and the way she like cans it over really slowly. You do? Like yeah. her, <laughs> that or the part where she's like, I'm gonna be with you because the killer wants to kill you. So if I'm with you, me, he won't kill me, he'll kill me because that's what he wants to do. And her long convoluted little rants. <laughs> That moment where she, um, what are you, a reporter for so high? And then she's like, it's worth two grand. You can tell Gail whether it's what you want or not. I loved her, dude. I thought she brought so much. I thought I think that she fits so much with the types of characters that are in the story. And it, it could have fooled me. I actually feel like that's the, the one of the new characters that feels like Kevin Williamson could have written. Even though he didn't write her, I, I, I dug her. It's just I didn't care for any of the other characters. And I think another problem for me is... I didn't find Roman very interesting as a killer. I don't really think he made, in fact, I feel like of the five people who are Ghostface, he's the one up until this point that made the least impression on me. And I get what they're trying to do with the trilogy thing, but I actually don't think that this enriches the first one in any way, adding that twist to the story that Roman was masterminding it the whole time and Billy and Stu were taking direct directions from Roman. I'm like, I don't know if, because it, it, it toys with trilogy tropes in the way that the first one toys with slasher tropes and the second one um, toys with sequel tropes. I don't know if that really works for me, the idea that Roman was the killer the whole time and he was masterminding it. I don't think it makes Scream any more interesting and I don't think it adds to it. It doesn't, it just, that plot doesn't work for me. And I like, it's interesting that they choose, and especially with the Weinsteins involved, that they kind of like start, um, talking a little bit about this, the abuse of the studio system and how they treat actresses and the way that they're passed around for sexual favors and stuff like that. That all rang very true, but it just felt like it was there pointlessly because it's only said a couple of times, but it's not explored as a theme, which is, to me, I'm like, if you're going to put that heavy theme there, then go for it and explore it and, and, and plug it into the horror. And I don't really think they do anything very interesting with that very heavy thematic concept that they're, that they're kind of throwing out is it's just stuff like that to me and it for me it just it doesn't have the energy of the first two i still like it though mostly because i like these characters i like dewey i like gail i kind of feel like they've kind of found um fell into a, a rhythm i don't know if they were still together at this point when they made the movie i think they might have been but yeah. there's a lot of genuine chemistry that 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 that, that they have but it's just, I just couldn't care for so many of these characters. And it was the classic ones that kind of got me through this movie. And then the climax was just too implausible for me. And a lot more worked for me than it did for you. I liked Jenny McCarthy's part. I thought it worked a lot better than, than the, the counterpart in part two, because Jenny McCarthy was a, an unseen character. She was another uh, big wig on the set. So it kind of makes, makes sense that she had just come to visit the set and nobody was there. And I thought the, the fight was well choreographed. The hits felt real. And I thought the kill was good. And then Patrick Warburton. I love seeing Patrick Warburton in anything. He's a Hollywood security guard. Always great comedy with this guy. And I thought, it, I thought that one was another great kill that was kind of funny. I, think, I, th I actually think he was being serious with that kill, but that guy can't help but be funny. So I was laughing at his kill. Uh, I love the, the reveals of it. The reveals of it felt much more organic than the first one, than the second one. The second one was very clunky. There was really no mystery to be solved at all. No mm -hmm. red herrings, no, no clues, no nothing. So then they find out that someone's killing people according to the script. I thought that was pretty cool. Much better red herring with Roman involving the person who is the killer. 
I thought there was good. It good does red have better red herrings, but for me, the red herrings are not what I like about Scream Two. So that doesn't really improve it for me because it's not what I like about that movie in the first place. It, it's it's just another thing that this one had that that two didn't have for me. And uh, uh, Ghostface using multiple voices is a bit confusing. Oh, that's but, another thing. I don't buy that at all, dude. That's another implausibility. I was like, I just don't. I, I just, I have a hard time buying. And again, this is a pretty implausible series to begin with. That just pushes it a little bit too much for me. I'm like, so he has everybody's voices. I don't know, man. It, that, I, I just, I don't buy it. It's, it's not believable to me. I mean, to me, it, it was believable to me at first because I thought, okay, it's set in Hollywood. Actors can do a lot of different voices. So maybe it's that. Maybe, maybe he was able to craft this thing. But but now I'm using excuses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, it just, I, I'm not saying it's not possible. Maybe there is some kind of technology or there was in the year 2000 or 1999 or, I mean, it came out in 2000, but it was filmed in 99 um, when they did it. But it just, it just pushes things too much. And, and look, I, I hate to be the complainer with this complaint because to have the complaint I'm about to have, because I don't like when other people have this complaint and I almost feel embarrassed that I have this complaint, but the truth is I have this complaint. I think it's a good thing when franchises, established franchises continue with their sequels and they do things a little bit different and they try to change it up. You got to do that to like, kind of like, you know, keep, keep the thing fresh. But the thing is like, and I get it that this is more serious, but I don't think this has like that kind of humor and the kind of spirit that makes scream movies scream that one, two and four have for me. It doesn't have that zippy energy, that relentless like forward drive that the other three have that it just, it, it, it feels a lot more like lead into me. It doesn't have like that same propulsion and the well, dialogue. It just, and well, see, see, I think this one has much better propulsion than than the the second one because it's much more eventful from from scene to scene there's much more killing there's much more mystery there's more but the thing uh, is, character I interaction i didn't find any of the characters interesting and i kind of like I, I just a lot of it was just kind of drawn out to me and i i think that that's where it just it doesn't it lacks a certain kind of energy that i liked about it and it doesn't make me laugh as much and i think luckily parker posey's in this she's a big part of what brings for me what brings the humor back well, to that that's what i loved about it is is it didn't have the as much humor and and the sharp humor in the script but it made it more serious which much most might have turned a lot uh, some people off but in such a more serious script they put comedic performances like parker posey and patrick warburton in there that i thought brought the comedy and had me rolling and then the the yeah. whole mystery with the strange photos of sid's mom showing up left at the crime scenes I thought that was all really cool. And then the, the killer faxing the new pages of the script as they're looking for him. It could have come off as really hokey, but I thought it was really good. And then it, it ended up in that gnarly kill with the explosion. I thought that was one of the best kills in it. I didn't see, I didn't like, I don't like that scene. Like even, I used to like this movie a lot more as a kid. To be fair, for a movie I'm criticizing this much, I, I'll admit I've seen this movie probably dozens more times than a lot of movies that I claim to like more because I grew up, fucking loving this franchise but i still don't really care for that explosion sequence it explodes and they go down and it just i don't know man it it, it doesn't work for me the, the faxing of the pages doesn't work and i don't like that character i don't know what it is that 
fucking character who plays Dewey and his half affected and like, oh, please kill him off already. I don't even kill him off because yeah, I don't see him on screen anymore. Like, I, I, I liked him because he was very deliberately that way. And I thought it was clear from the beginning that he was very deliberately a vapid character who's trying who's trying to play Dewey the way he was originally written as the the good looking leading man type. I thought I thought that was cool too because that's what okay, the that is, that script is, called for. I, I didn't think about that. It, it is subverting something behind the reality of the movie. So that, that makes sense. But it's just I other than Parker Posey, these new characters didn't do much for me. Patrick Dempsey is okay. I, I didn't love him, but I thought he was kind of interesting. I would have liked it more if he would have played a bigger part and played a little bit more into it because he seemed to me to be a little bit of one of the more interesting characters. And, I, and I'm sorry, I got to love a character who has a Kiss Me Deadly poster in their office. <laughs> that movie, I'm such a big fan, and I kind of geek out when I see that. Although, another thing, I really wished he would have answered Sid when she asked him, what's your favorite scary movie? And he says, my life. Yeah. Cringe. I'm sorry, <laughs> cringe. I'm like, it's not funny. He would have been cooler if he would have actually just named, I don't know, a movie. I don't know. Uh, and, uh, I feel like I, they could have done more with that character. He was one of the more interesting of the new people that they that they introduced. Yeah, I really like Patrick Dempsey, and and they they use him as a red herring several times, and I thought it worked every time. I thought I thought his his behavior was just strange enough to make you consider maybe he is the killer. An, another yeah, yeah. another thing another thing that part two didn't even have at all. Yeah, okay, he is an interesting red herring. But I don't like him as a red herring because it just seems so random. It's just like, I don't know what his connections are to any of this. So why would he be interested? And if, if you really think about it, a lot of the complaints you have are things that are very deliberate and things that they discuss in here as being part of the tropes of, a tri- of the end of a trilogy of a part three. Like, red uh, huh? Red herrings? No, the, the, all the, you know, most of the complaints you have point towards what they discuss here. The the thing that that's the very nature of a trilogy. Like, like when when Randy's sister shows up. Yes, that could have been hokey. That yeah, Randy left the tape behind. But he's the kind of character who would do that. It seemed believable. He talks of the unexpected unexpected backstory and exposition in part three, which we see. Uh, the trilogy reveals something we didn't know. Yes, it's a much better meta discussion of a third film and less ham-handed than the discussion of uh, sequels in part two. Maybe, but it it, it didn't entertain me though. So I don't I, know. I, I thought it okay, was okay. Randy leaving a tape behind does make sense, but the way that it gets introduced with his sister there and stuff like that—that's another thing that to me that just seems contrived and look they all the first two have moments like that they have contrived scenes that that things that don't really make sense happen so the story could get to where what it needs so i'm not going to say that the other two don't have it but because i was so not enjoying it i mean not not enjoying it but because i wasn't enjoying it the same way that's that stuff kind of stuck out to me where a lot of the times i can overlook it if the movie is like really like really viscerally engaging me and it's weird because I've gone so up and down all over the place with Scream 3. I actually thought I was going to give it a better review than I did because the last time I watched this, which was like a couple of years ago before my most recent viewing, I was showing it. This is when I was showing it to a couple of friends who had never seen any of the Scream movies. And I always said, three's the worst, so don't expect too much out of it. 
and I, I lowered my expectations. And for some reason, I really enjoyed it. And they were like, that was pretty good. I, I don't like it as much as the first two, but it's not what you thought it was. And I was like, yeah, that actually was pretty good. I kind of enjoyed it. So I remember when I watched it a couple of years ago, my respect for it started rising again, even though it was plummeting. And I thought it was going to be the same. Maybe it was just watching it by myself or so, for some reason, but it went back down again this, on, this, on this new viewing. I don't know what it is. I mean, I'm sure you've had experiences like that, depending on who you're sitting with or while you're watching a movie by yourself. You have different uh, experiences with the movie different times. But I can say I enjoyed this quite a bit two years ago when I started my opinion, started getting lower of it. And then it kind of went back down again when I saw it this time. Yeah, and well, for me, I actually thought it was more clever than two. It's a more clever script. It's a more clever mystery. Uh, more clever character interaction, more clever mm -hmm. ha red herrings, <laughs> more more clever fake outs. Uh, I thought it was more focus, much more focused than part two, save for some hokey moments that two didn't have, and and there's possibly too much going on, but there's much more going on in here, and and I think the flaw the flaws are there because because the the scriptwriter and Wes Craven were were throwing more at the wall than they, but because two was very stripped down, was very playing off the first one was very making another scream rather than trying to do something completely different like this one did. It does do something different, but it just, it doesn't work for me. I don't like the Maureen Prescott stuff. I think all of that's overwrought. I think Roman is boring. I wanted him to shut. I mean, I, the part that I most related to at the end of it was, uh, I actually have the line right here because it's how I felt. God, why don't you stop your whining and get on with it? I've heard this shit before. That's the moment I was like, yes, can, yes, just shoot this guy because he's not a good villain. He's not interesting. The, and there's a lot, like I said, each one has its implausibilities, but that whole thing leading back to her mother and making this epic thing and then rewriting the first one. But the, 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 the whole franchise does that. It, it does something and then it makes fun of itself for doing that. The whole franchise does that. I don't think it makes fun. And that's another thing. I actually think that takes that aspect of it seri seriously. And that's another thing that I, I don't think it's making fun of it. I, and that's another thing. Aaron Kruger, I mean, you can disagree with this. And I kind of see it in the film. He admits that when he was writing this, he didn't quite have a grasp on this world or this characters or what th this franchise was. And for me, I can see that in the movie. As long as the other complaints that I have that, I like I said, like, his supernatural abilities and the popping up all over the place, which I, again, I understand it's because they shot it to be two killers. And on that level, it makes sense. But to me, the finished product is still the finished product. And it just, it lacks energy for me. And I, it's only watchable for me because I like the characters and because I love Parker Posey in this one. And it has a really good opening scene. But so much of it drags, it takes the tropes that it's parroting a little too seriously where I don't even feel like it's, I mean, maybe it is making fun of the tropes of the trilogy in terms of what it's doing, but I don't think the movie is very funny about how it's parroting it, or even if it's meant to be a parody. To me, it seems almost deathly serious. I mean, it, it articulates it pretty, <laughs> pretty clearly that, that that's what it's doing. But, but it's not a good parody, though. It just, it, to me, it comes across as deathly serious. Like, like, we know how goofy this is, or we know that this is somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I don't get the feeling that Aaron Kruger realized how tongue-in-cheek or how goofy that actually is. Or it's just, that's, that, that's a, a complaint I got, even rewatching it, a complaint. I, I totally get it. It doesn't feel like 
scream as much as one, two, and four do. But I actually appreciate it for that because it's it's a completely different setting. It's set in Hollywood, a more decadent, a more vapid setting. So it makes sense that your characters aren't as layered. It makes sense that that these are you know vapid, single-minded type of characters. Or are you just making but, uh, excuses? Huh? Or are you making excuses? No, I mean, I'm just, I'm makes, just that, that was, <laughs> I'm totally, I'm totally joking. I mean, pretty much every movie that, that features Hollywood actors has vapid characters like that. And, uh, I like, I like the additional red herring with Emily Mortimer. I thought that was well done and believable. Uh, and then Sid on the set of Woodsboro, I thought it was pretty cool, but it I had to suspend a lot of disbelief because why is she left alone so long on the set? Uh, but I thought it was a, a great fight and a, a great chase that was kind of interrupted by the dead mom under a sheet, and we, we addressed why that was a problem. Uh, but I like the party at the director's house. Uh, I love when a movie finds a good reason for characters to split up, how half of them went upstairs and half of them went downstairs. Uh, that leads to a, fake, a great fake-out that throws you off the scent of the killer. Uh, I like that one chaotic scene where where you have all the the characters, all the remaining characters, I think it was like four, four characters standing in a room together. And that's the, the last time you would expect Ghostface to show up, but he shows up out of nowhere and he kind of attacks everybody. I, I love scenes like that where a killer walks up in the middle of a group of people and it's kind of believable the way he fights all of them. So I thought that was it's a great chaotic the, scene. That, I mean, that is kind of cool, but it's not believable that he was there, given that he was just all the way on the other side of the house a second That's ago. That's true. <laughs> like I said, then, like, but the, the one-way mirror kill with Parker Posey, I thought that was cool as hell. Oh, and that's another thing. I didn't like that scene. I didn't like that as a kill scene. There was no gore in it. I didn't like, look, Gail, the mirror's moving. Like, like that was not funny. But I liked like, it. <laughs> no. Like, and that's another, I think that's, that's the problem with it is the big overarching is arching thing. I don't think Aaron Kruger is as witty as Kevin Williamson in terms of like that wit part where that, like the, 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 like he's doing some of the same things, like granted he is still doing the tropes and the parodies, but I just don't think he's funny. And the only things that are funny are because the characters make them funny because Parker Posey really brings it. A lot of it is her delivery, not necessarily what she's saying it, it's how she says it and her little take on it and her mannerisms and her jitteriness and her you and her. Um, she's one of the characters, she's pretty vapid minded too, but I like yeah. her more because she's so entertaining where the other ones were just vapid minded and just like, okay, you're not interesting. You're not cool. Uh, you're not funny. I, you're just kind of there. I, I agree with that definitely as far as the comedic aspects. That's a, I think that's a totally valid criticism. Just like, like Patrick Warburton, one of the funniest parts of the movie for me, I don't think he was ever trying to be funny. <laughs> I think he just is. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I like the whole Ghostface holding Dewey and Gale hostage to lure Sid to the set. It, it gives her a real reason to come to the set. Uh, I know it was kind of silly, but the whole false wall with Sid fighting the killer on the other side, I was excited by it. I don't know why. <laughs> mm -hmm. But when the killer revealed, it was a little bit too much of Ghostface standing there talking before the killer was revealed. It almost lost me right there. Like, like Roman standing there talking to her in the Ghostface voice. 
and he's just going on and on too much. So he should have just taken the, the mask off. But after he takes the mask off, I thought that was one of the best fights with Sid was in that, that climax. It was, it was high impact. It was, it was exciting. It was all over the place. Uh, and I, I thought it was a cool, funny part right at the end when the killer's running toward Dewey. And he's just shooting him in the whole uh, the, that he had a bulletproof vest and all that. And, and Nev screams at him to shoot him in the head. I, I, li- I liked all that. Not as, not as strong of an uh, ending as part one or part two, but I liked it. I thought it was okay. Again, I don't know how I'm going to react to it when I watch it again. Maybe if I watch it with somebody else, I might have a different reaction. But it's one of those movies where my opinion has gone up, down, sideways, and all over. Every time I watch it, I have like a different experience. So, yeah, like, like I've watched it several times, and this is the first time I really enjoyed it. Interesting. And I always, I always thought after watching it, I was like, man, it was good. It was, it was another scream, but nothing great but but this time i noticed all the great things about it mm-hmm. i just i just had a lot of fun with it okay and i don't want to keep going back and forth to this debate that i know what we're going to have, have is which is better scream two or scream three you have to admit scream two is engraved as a classic more than scream three is scream two is a better film so you do think it's a better film yes scream two is a better film i i think uh scream three is more bold and that's what i like about it more bold and flawed I, I actually okay. like, I like actually like bold and flawed more than simple and and well well made. Okay, that's a that that's fair, that's fair, that totally makes sense. And that brings us to the latest one, which was from 2011. I can't believe it's already been 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago. Doesn't it feel strikingly modern? It almost I, I had like a weird experience watching it. It almost, I know that a lot's changed in the past 10, 11 years, and it has, but some of the themes of technology and fame and how people get famous and a lot of what it's harping on is probably more relevant now than it was 10 years ago. It was relevant 10, 11 years ago, but I think it's more relevant now. And it almost, and it doesn't mean it's redundant, but it almost is like, what are they going to do with the new screen, with the new one? Like you would address me and this one seems to already be doing that. It doesn't seem like the themes of it haven't aged a bit in the past 10, 11 years. In fact, they're probably a little bit more relevant now. Yeah, this one, uh, it has everything that I really liked about two and three and nothing that I disliked about either one of them. Mm. I think, I think it took the elements that I really liked about two and three and just polished them and honed them this one's this one seemed much more competent much more uh, focused and and like they knew exactly what they wanted to say they knew exactly how they wanted it to play out and ju- it just so well crafted I, I think this is the best crafted screen film since the first one that's i still like two a little bit more but i, I definitely see the argument for part four in fact i think these days I, I've noticed kind of like the critical reevaluation over the years has always been that Scream 2 is the second best. But I think over the past 10 years, I've noticed it's kind of swung the other way where a lot of a lot of people, you're not alone in this, is a very big camp of people who are now will say that Scream 4 is the best, is is the best sequel. And I think it's totally valid. And there are things about this that I really like that none of the others have. One thing that I really need to praise Scream 4 for it is 
a fucking mean-spirited, nasty, brutal slasher movie in the way that some of the 80s were nasty, brutal, mean-spirited slasher movies. Don't get me wrong. They're all brutal and they're all violent and they're all very tense. But this one has like a nastiness to it that I feel that like more um, present in the films that it's spoofing than it's ever been in the series. The, The kills are much gorier. They, I don't know. There's a ruthlessness to this movie and we'll get into that but but yeah but i i think it's the meanest scream movie and the 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 bitterest sourest of as a slasher film and i thought it was better characters in both two and three as well you got uh nev campbell courtney cox and david arquette of course returning as the three central characters emma roberts i think this is one of the best performances of the whole franchise excellent performance excellent killer yes the best villain of the whole franchise. Jesus Christ, she is the most snarling. She's the one that I most bought was capable of all the carnage that they caused. Of all the killers, of anybody who's ever taken up the moniker of Ghostface, she had nothing about her where, like, the patheticness of Billy, where some parts of, parts of him are a little bit, like, ugh, the douchebagginess, doesn't have the ridiculousness of Stu, um, the wild, ridiculous plot motivations of, um, timothy of uh, mickey of uh, yeah. character are like the convoluted backstories of debbie salt and um roman she is the one that is most believable to me that this vicious little bitch did all of that. <laughs> yes and i love marley shelton as deputy judy and i'm so glad she's returning in the new one that's why i said marley shelton okay earlier yeah yeah Marley Shelton, uh, Hayden Panettiere, I loved her. I think this is one of the best performances of her career. Uh, mm-hmm. Hayden Panettiere as Kirby, awesome. Uh, I've, I've always loved Rory Culkin. Rory Culkin is really great as Charlie Walker. Uh, Allison Brie, I have a huge crush on Allison Brie, and she really brought it in this one. She was funny. She was cute. Uh, she brought a lot to the story, everything. Uh, Roger Jackson, of course, is go- the ghost face voice. And then we have some small parts from uh, Anthony Anderson, Adam Brody as the deputies, and Lucy Hale, Anna Paquin, and Kristen Bell. All, all pretty good cameos. The synopsis of this one, 10 years after part three, Sydney returns to Woodsboro to promote her new book and is stalked by another killer in the Ghostface costume. Uh, Peter Deming returns as cinematographer. Uh, this one has another meta, meta beginning. Uh, it's a meta beginning with Lucy Hale, and it turns out to, oh, this is stab six. And there's a, a the nice torture porn discussion and they're watching Saw 4 and they talk about a Facebook stalker. So they're throwing a lot at you right away, but so focused. Uh, then it goes even more meta with the beginning with Anna Paquin and Kristen Bell. And then they're discussing lame multiple sequels. And then that's stab seven, fake. You know, then the, go on, go on, go on, sorry. Then, then the real beginning begins and it's two girls discussing the movie within a movie Franchise is getting ridiculous. Great brutal kills. So you have all this great meta discussion just right in the opening scene. See, I think it, what they kind of knew, it seems like what they did with the fourth one is that they're aware Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson are very, oh yeah, Kevin Williamson returns. That's another thing I think about. This feels a little bit more like a Scream movie than Scream 3. And I, yes. I think a lot, a lot, it feels more true to like the spirit. You know what I mean? The, the humor and the meta quality. But anyways, it seemed like they're, they're very aware of the legacy of the openings of these films and they knew they had to bring it and they had to do something a little bit different if they were going to like match them or top it. 
and it kind of ups the medical. The second one has a ridiculously meta opening sequence, and I th think this ups it even more. And I think it's what's funny about it is when you get to the actual real part, you're still not sure if this is it or if you're being faked out again. I've seen it a couple times, but I always forget, is it three or four times before we get faked out of what the real opening is? But it's done so well that it leaves the audience questioning, and why, what, and what I'm, what I'm watching, is it real or is it not? Is it the movie or is it a movie within the movie? It's all a movie anyway, but you, you know what I mean? Yeah. The reality, it's very clever at keeping the audience off balance. And I love the line um, where Anna Paquin, right before she gets stabbed, it's really funny because he said, nothing like, what did she say? Nothing unexpected or there's nothing surprising happens. And then the, her friend just like reaches over and stabs her really quick. And holy crap, if you want to talk about something that's really unexpected or totally out of left field, you did it right there. The fact that the most unexpected possible thing happened right after she just said that horror movies have nothing, these are unexpected, it's totally cool. Totally aware of what the Scream franchise is. Oh, please, a bunch of articulate kids sitting around deconstructing horror movies until Ghostface shows up and, to kill them. And tell me, tell me if you agree, that could have failed miserably. Oh, yeah. Because they even have a similar open on one of the scary movies, the 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 scary movie spoofs. They have a similar opening with the the movie within oh, a movie. I forgot about that. They do. And so this could have very well come off as hokey like that, but not at all. It's so well directed, and so effective. Mm -hmm. And then it goes just like with the other ones. You finish this great meta opening scene, and then we meet our central characters, which we meet Sid and Dewey. Sid is a writer returning to Woodsboro with her assistant. Uh, Allison Bree, she's great right away. And then you see Dewey and Gail are married and Dewey's a sheriff. Uh, Hayden Panettiere and Emma Roberts are believable friends and I loved watching them the whole time. I thought they were both great leads. Uh, I thought it was a great dynamic between Dewey, Gail, and Deputy Jill. It was always funny and interesting when those three got together. Uh, the new, I, I like the new set of film geeks, geeks even though Rodney Mercer the film geek was uh, the new randy i, I didn't even care it was the, the, those i like those two a lot especially the culkin guy so it's it's uh, so meta that it there's like these the movie's aware that they killed off randy and since he was such a big part of what made the franchise what it was in terms of its identity like it's so tied to randy's personality i i think these movies that you need the randy character even if you're not randy there needs to be hardcore film geeks who sit around and destruct and deconstruct and think about slasher movies and horror movies like this i love i mean i don't know if, i mean i i love um hayden panettiere i like that I, I don't know i i don't even know if that's like a positive or anything or if that makes it better but i find it her more endearing that she likes such hardcore cult horror movies not that that makes it better but for me it makes it better that makes sense. Yeah, she likes cult horror movies. She listens to metal, and I, I love the the whole conversation where uh, Ghostface is feeding her trivia, and she just starts naming off all these movies. Mm -hmm. And it's and some some of them are very atypical choices too. I like that. I have to say, I was very proud of myself during that scene because when I saw this movie ten or eleven years ago for the first time, I hadn't seen a good chunk of the movies that I'd heard them. Now watching, I've seen pretty much except maybe one or two pretty much every movie that's being referenced in that moment so that was like a person that's like yeah i feel confirmed as a horror fan 
Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, it has some great character interactions too. Cause I, I think it brings some of the more serious dramatic aspects into it that three did, but it handles it, the, the balance so much better in this one uh, with the way Dewey is worried about Gail's life, not being interesting and, and, and eventful enough because she, she decided to stay in Woodsboro with him because he's a sheriff. And then he's trying to keep her away from the case. And then the kind of deputy Jill kind of tries to keep her, keep her away from the case and she's fighting it. I, I, I like that whole dynamic. Don't, don't uh, you, turning Dewey back into like a police officer and making him the sheriff makes it feel like brings it full circle, like more of like the classic, like this is Dewey that we really, like the Dewey, like, you know what I mean? Older, yeah. wiser, but I really like that they made him a, a police officer again in this one. Yeah. And then that, uh, I love the Shaun of the Dead sequence between uh, Hayden Panettiere and Emma Roberts, where uh, Ghostface is across the street. And this was, was very reminiscent of Nightmare on Elm Street with uh, Nancy and Johnny Depp across the street, where uh, Ghostface tells them to look in the closet. And there's that whole tense part where they open the closet and he's not there. He said, I didn't say which closet. And then he jumps out of the closet on the, uh, across the street. And that's, by the way, that's a really brutal stabbing right there. That was holy fuck. And it's not just like, it's, it's brutal. And it's not just like a brutal stabbing. The aftermath of it is horrifying. I think that's the most horrifying aftermath in any of, I think it even tops the Drew Barrymore aftermath, which is pretty hard to do. I mean, she's hanging from a tree and you see her intestines hanging out. But yes. the way that that room is splattered with blood and the way that her intestines are just outside of her at that point, it was brutal it was sickening it was shocking it it it's fuck it was so mean like it's like it's what you'd expect out of the most hardcore 80 slashers that, that you've seen like they really brought that element of it it's easily the nastiest screen movie out of any of the four and, and, and I, so i thought it was so effective as well that they just so, showed this really brutal kill and then sid runs straight over by herself and you're like, oh, shit. And then she gets on the phone with Ghostface, and he has that great line. I loved it. He said, I'm going to cut your eyelids open so you can see me stabbing you in the face. And mm -hmm. her, even her face was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. But that was another great fight, and she kicks his ass. Just hand-to-hand, -hand, legitimately just kicks his ass. And then uh, um, I love when Gail approaches the film geeks to help her solve the case. It totally makes sense because Dewey wouldn't let her uh, kind of being on the investigation. So she goes to the only other two that she thinks might be able to help her. Uh, uh, Allison Brie being fired and then stalked in the parking garage. Uh, the, it, th this was a very classical scene to me, like the a classic scene of a woman being stalked alone in a parking garage. But You've seen it a hundred times before, but I, I, at this point, I, I, it's the execution that counts. Yes, and, and what, what really drives that sequence home is when the body is thrown off the building onto the van right in the middle of Dewey's press conference. Awesome. So perfect right there. That's something that's not part of that classic scene. You, that doesn't usually happen in that, that cliche of a woman being stark, stalked in a, an abandoned parking garage or something like that. It never ends like that. Yeah. <laughs> so it does add a little bit of a wrinkle. Uh, yeah, chaotic. Uh, and you know what's weird? Uh, 
she's not a likable character, but she's still adorable and likable, no matter how hard she tries to be that publicist. And this is not like a knock on her acting. It's just she's so sweet and likable yeah. that you don't even hate her that much when she's being callous or she's not really thinking about Sydney or she's not really processing the horror of what's going on right now or the trauma of it. You kind of like, what? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's what's so great about her performance. Like, you remember the part where she goes up nerding out on uh, Gail? And she's so oblivious that she, she's so uh, centered on the publicity part of it and, and uh, making advancing her career that she doesn't realize that she's insulting Gail. So Gail just tells her off and she gets this little look like she's so hurt. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> she's also she opened her mouth too much. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I love the part when uh, Sid and Gail visit the movie club and they kind of mix it up with the film geeks. And I, I, that was, I thought that was one of the most clever discussions of the meta aspect of it, where they discuss modern horror movies and remakes and all that. Uh, and then the geeks being so defiant that they, they determine that the killers killing everybody based on the original kills and they know the next kill is going to happen at a party, and they still insist on throwing their party. <laughs> They're like more arrogant versions of Randy. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, not as weird. By the way, I, I just had to rewind before I forget. And I, I, I know this is so out of left field, but I wanted to get this across. Randy is such an odd fucking character. The things that he does. Go back to Scream 2 when, he's, when she sees Gail. Oh, there's Gail. I'm going to go get a little closer. And he says it really weird and slinks off. He always does these really strange things. He's an odd guy. Yeah, he is. <laughs> I think that um, especially the Rory Culkin one is like Randy, but a little cooler than Randy yes. was. Like a little bit more, um, like you could see this kid like mixing it up with the popular kids more than you could have ever pictured Randy doing that. Or you can even, it's not implausible that he hooks up with like one of the, the hotter girls in school or, or, or something like that. It's a little bit more, more plausible. He's not quite as pathetic of a geek as, as Randy ever was. Yeah. He's cooler and more confident. Yeah. And a, another great party sequence, just like the beginning. I, I thought the whole party sequence was good. I, I was so excited when Gail starts setting up the cameras again. And it's a great sequence because it calls back to the original, but it finds a really clever way to change it up. Like right away, she sits. She sits down in her car to look at the uh, at the feed of the different cameras, and then she sees Ghostface start covering them up. Thought that was really cool. And then she she sees herself being watched. I, that that whole scene kind of oddly really scary to me. It is. I I think that's one of the reasons that that like that type of scene. What you're talking, you know, how it recalls kind of the first one but does something completely different with it. I think that's one of the reasons that this one has kind of become like a fan favorite. And it seems to, it's, I'm, more time goes on, you will hear more people saying Scream 4. I mean, I don't, I can't speak on the new one. Uh, we'll find out soon enough. But as of right now, as of this moment, the more time goes on, Scream 4 seems to be the, the favored sequel out of all of them. And it's because it's the one that feels the most like the original Scream without wholesale copying it or repeating it it repeats it without really repeating it it does the same thing but still 
like stakes new ground and still pushes the story in a completely different direction and surprises you. It almost uses what you expect based off the first movie. It like uses the, the audience's intimate knowledge and um, you know, the fandom of Scream to kind of like turn, turn itself around on this one. So I, I really like that it feels like Scream, but nothing like it at all. It feels like it does everything the same, but completely different at the same time. It, and it does enough different to feel fresh. Yeah, it's fresh. Fresh like, and recalls it. Like, and that's a really hard balance to pull off, to feel like an echo of the first movie and feel like a callback to it, while also doing something completely different and new with it, is a really difficult balance, and I think they really nailed it with this one. And even that really small meta scene with the, the cops outside on the stakeout, they're discussing what, you know, the fate of cops in these movies, and they even do the I'll be right back thing. And that culminates in this great kill. I love the kill of the two cops. Just that brutal stab from behind and then right into the forehead. Mm -hmm. Thought that was really cool. And I love the moment too when Ghostface is just watching Anthony Anderson bleeding and still like shooting and like his head's kind of cocked, like almost like very amused by the victim thinking that they're going to do anything or, or, or get by. And the, by the way, the blood, the thick blood was gushing into his eye. It was gushing. He had his hand on his forehead like that, like he stabbed him right here in the forehead, and it was just gushing everywhere right here. Mm-hmm. That looked pretty nasty. And you felt it because it, you don't spend much time with these cops, but you feel like you spent just enough time to get to know them. Mm-hmm. And yet you've seen them kind of screw up once, and you kind of want them to, to do better this time, but they don't. <laughs> And of course, by picking somebody as likable as Anthony Anderson, they knew that they were that they were doing with that. And it's pretty loaded with little parts like that. There's some really major actors, and that shows you how many people wanted to be a part of this or wanted to be yeah. a legacy of Scream, just to have a chance to be in it. And then that brutal kill is, is followed up by that interesting little uh, kill where it's a stab through the mail slot, mm-hmm. where where Nev runs away from the door, thinking the other character is okay. And then kind of the blood comes out of her mouth and then she falls and you see that he stabbed her right through the nail slot. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. And then uh, f- that's followed by this, another great ghost face call to Hayden Panettiere that we, we mentioned earlier where she, he starts giving her all this trivia. Uh, I thought that whole sequence was well choreographed fights and a better sense of where everyone is during. Because mm-hmm. all, all of the first three, there were parts where you're like, where is this person? Why is that person just hanging out while this is going on? And then after the action's over, they kind of pop up. But this one, they were really careful with that, I noticed. Yeah. Like I said, that's part of the, some of the implausibilities that you have to overlook the screen films that occasionally you're like, wait, what? That doesn't make sense. But yeah, in, in terms of like spatial relations, it's very easy to follow where everybody is and what's happening at what, and not the least bit confusing. And the reveal of both the killers, I thought, was really strong. Yeah. The first one was, but, was good, but that, that last one was awesome. The, the main killer reveal is even better. Uh, it's pretty elaborate and believable plan. I was kind of impressed with the plan. Uh, she, mim- she mimics a Billy and Stu's stab each other scene, but much more serious. Uh, and that... Uh, uh, the excellent attempted setup of the crime scene. I, l- I love that whole sequence. 
Oh man, I remember when I when I went to go see Scream Four in a, a theater. Like the audience was like it was like a mixture of like gasps and people laughing and it's just uh, it, and emma 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 roberts plays that scene off so well and i i think i mean she's good through the whole movie but you realize how good she was in that last scene because if you start replaying some of the movie in your head after you realize that she's the killer you could kind of see some of the fakeness that was always present there but she was so good at pulling it off that you kind of still bought her as you know, yeah. like being in distress and you still cared about her, but you could kind of sense, wait, there is that little bit of catty fakeness that was always lurking at the edges of the, of, of the character and her performance. And it becomes very clear why she's such a hateful, nasty minded, oh, awful, awful person. So her complete disregard for human life. And yeah. she talks about how she killed her family, like, you know, her mom and her friends and um, she doesn't really care about having friends and it's all about the family and everything like that. And that is just a great psycho moment where she's putting the, her, her dead boyfriend, like grabbing her hair, pulling it, screaming, running into the wall and stabbing herself, smashing into the damn, <laughs> into picture frames, tossing herself on glass tables, like really going for it. I was like, that is one of the standout sequences in any of the screen in any of the screens is Emma Roberts' little setup of the crime scene. And it's there that you just see how mentally unhinged this girl is. You really see how truly psychotic and out of her damn mind she is and how evil and conniving and cunning she is. So of all the ghost face killers, she's the one to me that's the most believable killer. The one that I most bought would be this cunning, this conniving, this manipulative and would be able to come this close to pulling it all off by far to me the best villain of the franchise in my yes, and that 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 whole reveal and the mm-hmm. and and all that and the the fight with sid it was a really dangerous fight with sid by the way because she they, i think this is the worst sid has ever, ever been hurt right yeah oh yeah so you was, might even die so it was a really gnarly fight and then you see the killer go around and and set up the crime scene and that whole sequence already feels like a really exciting climax. And then they had another waiting for us in the hospital. You know what's crazy? The hospital, and this is very typical of Scream, like I said. I find that hospital shit a little bit implausible in terms of how it plays out and how much goes on without interference or security or other nurses. That's not wholly believable. But it's so exciting and it's so tense and it's so thrilling that when it plays out, you can kind of overlook that and you're like, sure, this probably wouldn't really happen, but damn it, this is so thrilling and so exciting that you don't really care. It's still really effective. The moment when Judy came out, and Judy was a great red herring. She's creepy. Yes. She's such a creepy character. The way she was in, in, the, in the shadows on the stairs and she's kind of explaining to Sid, oh, remember me? I had this class with you in this class. <laughs> Yeah, and her obsessiveness and her, like, yeah, she's a, a great red herring, but she gets her moment when she jumps through the door. Um, you see that she's actually a good person because she's obviously very jealous of Gail, and it's very, very apparent that she has a massive crush on Dewey and pines for him and yeah. probably doesn't think that somebody like Gail is worthy of as nice or sweet of a man as Dewey is, but that moment where she goes and, like, tackles Gail and saves her, uh totally redeems her character not that it needed redeeming characters don't need to be likable but 
I liked her a lot, though. I, I think she adds yeah. more to this movie. Um, she's a cool part, and I'm glad she's coming back. Uh, yeah, um, totally dig, dig Marley Shelton in this, and I really love both climaxes, including the hospital climax, as implausible as it is. It's too much fun for me to care too much. Yeah, and, and I don't know about you, but when I first saw this, I became a little frightful that Sid was about to die. Mm-hmm. Because you already seen her, you, you, you thought maybe she was dead at the house, but it's kind of believable. Yeah, yeah, she survived and she's in another room. But then when you see her go over there, go over to kill Sid, and they get in the fight, and she keeps hitting Sid in the place where she stabbed her. The stitches. Yes, that hurt every time, and you thought, oh, shit, she's got one up on Sid. She's just going to kill her right here, and then mm-hmm. <laughs> the, big, the big save at the end. But I thought that I – lo- I know it was, it was kind of cheesy, but I love that final kill when they say, clear. What? Clear what? Bam, don't fuck with the original. <laughs> oh, that's totally cheesy. It's totally ham-handed. But the thing is, I think they know it is, and they're playing into it. That's a big part yes. of the charm. I think that that in some ways, some of these flaws are kind of built or baked into what the franchise is, because the whole time through the entire series, it's pointing out, and it's very clear that it knows what the absurdities of the genre are, and it knows the implausibilities, and it knows what's hokey and what's ridiculous, but it, it points this out, but then it's also loving at the same time because it's, it's teasing it. It's not like mocking it in a mean spirited way. It's just like, we know the formula. We know how ridiculous it, it is, but hell, we're going to show you why it still works. We're even going to explain it to you and have it coming out of the character's mouths. And then we're going to have those characters do the very things that they were just criticizing or making fun of. And you're still going to be on the edge of your seats. You're still going to be into it and you're still going to, you're still going to love it. And I think that's what's, what's cool about it is it knows that scene it's hokey and it just goes for it. It says, fuck it. We know it's hokey, but we also know this is what the audience wants and we're going to give it to them the best way possible, the most satisfying way. And I think that's what makes it such a great horror franchise is that it knows what it is and just full on embraces it and just doesn't care all the ridiculous things from Henry Winkler doing his cutting knives around to all the ridiculous character motivations to the fact that characters show up where they shouldn't be and things that didn't happen. It is part of Scream's charm. Not to make excuses for it, but it's part of what makes it Scream. And it's what separates it from other horror slasher franchises. And rewatching part four makes me even more excited to watch Scream 5, which is another 10 years later. With, Although, with new directors. Don't you, th- like, like, like what I was saying at the beginning when we first started talking about Scream 4, it's going to be interesting to see how they kind of like update it with themes that are a little bit relevant to a modern audience because they're already talking about Twitter. And I mean, I know Twitter is more of a big thing now. You said it makes more sense to be a Twitter stalker, which I was like, I feel like that's more relevant now than it would have yeah. been in 2011 when less young people are on Facebook and more people are on Twitter and the whole technology and filming yourself and which was happening in 2011, but I don't think it's to the same extent it is now. I think some of the character motivations are a little bit stronger in this day and age. It feels kind of plugged into, except for a few things here and there, it feels like it's plugged into 2021 or 2022 or just like right now it almost like when I watch it, I was like, 
is there a need for a new scream? Like, what else could they say? Because this movie seemed to have been addressing technology and all of these things, a, a lot of modern parts, a lot of things that are part of modern life in, in 2011. So it's going to be very interesting to see. Do you get what I mean? Like, I, I yeah. say, like is it necessary? I'm sure they'll find a good angle. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. But it felt more modern for a movie that's 10 or 11 years old. It felt very plugged into the moment still. It did. So uh, I'm really excited for this next one too because of the, the two directors, that they directed uh, Ready, Ready or Not. And they, they both said that Scream, the Scream movies are the reason that they're directors. So they really wanted to do this justice. And from what I hear, it's, it's getting nothing but good reviews. It is. And I, I'm, I was obviously for years, ever since Scream 4, and very sadly, this was Wes Craven's last film. But I think it's a really good way to go out, to go out with your most vicious, brutal, violent slasher that you've ever done in your career. Um, but I've always, like over the years, I always thought the idea of another scream just doesn't work because what makes Scream scream to me is um, Kevin Williamson's witticisms, his witty writing, his humor, his insight into teen dialogue and the meta qualities um, married to uh, Wes Craven's classically expert direction and mounting of suspense sequences and, and the beauty. I always thought that's what makes the franchise. But when they announced that who the directors were and I started thinking, I was like, Ready or Not has a lot of qualities of what makes Scream good. It's violent, it's chaotic, but it's still funny. It has a sense of humor about itself that never undercuts any of the gory moments or the violence. It's a natural fit. That seems right. So I, remember, I was like, you know what? I got to give this one another chance because those, if there's any directors that are like cut out for this kind of material, it's them. I totally yeah. see it in Ready or Not. I see a lot of screen influence in Ready or Not. So I, I think those are really good choices. And they're the reasons why I'm able to be like, okay, I'm up for a new screen film. And the fact that Kevin Williamson is on board. I don't think he wrote the script, but he was involved in writing it. And I know that he's a producer on it and he's very plugged into it. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So do, do you have a prediction of whether we're going to use uh, lose one of our three core characters, Sid or Dewey or Gail? Here's another one. I'm going to throw a question back at you. I hate to do this, but I answer a question or a, with a question. Do you think there's a chance that one of our core beloved created characters is the killer? Not going to be killed is the killer. I think that's an even better question. Now that's the question. I don't know if it's true or not, but look, maybe Dewey would die. If, if all right, if any of the three characters I think would die, it would be Dewey because I think it would hit the audience the hardest because he's the sweetest character or the nicest one. Yeah. And I think if any of them were to be the killer, it would be Sydney because it would be the most shocking thing. But at the same time, it's not. By the standards of this franchise, it's not completely implausible given everything she's been through and her trauma. What if she finally did snap? Granted, that's very risky if they do do that. And it has to be done in a particular way to make it work. That, 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 that won't work without real care put into it. But if I had to guess, Sydney's the killer. If there is a killer of the, of the core character, I don't know if that's true or not, it would be Sydney. And if they were going to kill a character off, it would be Dewey. Yeah, I would agree with both those choices. You would, you would say so? Yeah, because I, I was about to say that, that Sydney might just, 
just judging by what she's been through, maybe it's just so much trauma for her that she finally snaps. Who knows? And I, I don't think Dewey would work as a killer. I think that would just, it, it's, it's totally wrong. Gail Weathers, it's, it's just, just, it doesn't fit either. Sydney is the only one that I could see ending up being the killer. And given the canon of the franchise, two of the killers were her family members. Maybe I'm, there's a crazy, I mean, like, that's not a thing, but within this world, there's a crazy gene or something because one of them is her cousin and the other one is her, uh, the other is her brother. So it only makes sense that it would be in the family, that there would still be killers in the family. But it's hard to know. I mean, did you see that poster where they show all the cast and the poster says the killer is on this poster? Oh yeah. Really clever marketing. Some of the, some of the posters are like 80s style VHS throwbacks. I don't know if you've seen them. They're doing such a good job with like the marketing and the posters are all really cool and things that I would love to hang up and frame in my room. Yeah. Everything about this new movie is making me more excited about it. And then when the, the early reviews started coming out, it was, universally praising it saying that this is the best one since part one up here in a lot of that so i definitely could see that we'll be reviewing it in the coming weeks um i wonder what it's going to look like that's one thing i forgot to mention one thing that i, I noticed it's a little bit different from scream 4 is the look of it it still is reminiscent of the look of screams one through three but there's like a soft focus fuzziness to some of it that, that looks very intentional and a little bit more of a washed out scene and a little color, like some of the color palette is like played within a certain way. Whereas the first three were very slick and crisp and clear and that kind of changed it up a little bit, which I think is appropriate after so many times you want to give it a slightly different look. So I wonder what this movie is going to look like. Is it going to have like the classic crisp look to it? Is it going to be fuzzy or if they're going to go in a new direction? I'm interested to see what, what they're going to do with it. Yeah, this is a completely unique franchise and there's so many reasons to be excited about it because it's not just another slasher franchise. It's a slasher franchise that's dedicated to slasher franchises you know mm -hmm. it's it's kind of a, a send-up of you know kind of a tribute to what it is that was cool all right buddy i'm guessing uh i'm guessing chucky agrees he's having an agreement yeah <laughs> his ghost man's ghost faces dog chucky named after chucky charles <laughs> another killer from a classic franchise yeah <laughs> I, I think he i think he sees ghost face outside probably does be careful Mike. <laughs> i know right i'm next check all, your calls. check all your calls but yeah i'm really looking forward to scream five we'll we'll discuss <laughs> next week uh i hope it lives up to the franchise because even with the one that i personally like the least scream three i still like it i still don't think it's bad despite all of my complaints i still have an affinity for it and i have a certain amount of nostalgia for it i'll admit i've seen that movie dozens of times no matter how much shit i talk about it I've seen it a lot. I've probably seen it more than Scream 3, Scream 2, actually, which you might find interesting, but I've seen it so many damn times. Probably because it was very current when I was like 10, about 10 years old. And I remember when that came out on VHS, I watched it over and over. But yeah, uh, so much that we could talk about. One thing before we go, I need I keep rewinding. Um, do you remember when I was talking to you about the, my impressions of the original Scream as a child versus an, as an adult? Oh, yeah. How I thought something was different. I remembered Scream being more violent and gory when I saw it when I was a kid than it comes across now. 
especially in the opening sequence, I used to always think, I swear that sequence was a lot gorier and you saw the guts coming out of um, Casey Becker's boyfriend, Drew Barrymore, like you actually saw them falling. And I always chalked it up over the years. It's like, that's because you were a kid and that stuff probably seemed like from the impression of a, from the, the viewpoint of a six or seven year old, of course, it's going to seem more violent, but it turns out that I found out in the past few months that I wasn't hallucinating it. It actually used to be more violent. The NC-17 cut was released on VHS and passed off as the R-rated cut for years and nobody said anything or noticed it. And when they started, you know, remastering it for like DVD and Blu-ray, it disappeared and it went back to the theatrical cut. So bring that back. I, I started reading up on it. The only difference, it's not like it changes scenes or it's not a different movie. It's just that the gore scenes all linger a little bit more or longer. Um, Rose McGowan's death is a little more graphic from what I understand in the NC-17 version as are the opening sequences. So whoever has the rights to it or Miramax or whoever you are, give us the damn unrated cut, please. Give us the one that we grew up on in the 90s with, the one that we passed around the VHS Bring it back. I want to see the movie brought back to how vicious it used to be. It's a it's a perfect opportunity to finish this one, and then when you go to put it out on on Blu-ray, then add that as a as a special feature. Have the complete uncut NC-17 version of Scream. Yeah, that's what I want to see. Cut all that stuff back in and and, and put it back to the way that it should have been. Yeah, but yeah, Scream. We got a lot to say about this franchise. Another excellent franchise, but much, much less entries than the last one we covered, Chucky, but still a lot to, to snatch onto, grab onto. Yeah, and it's so important because people forget, and it's one of those weird things because as much as I love this franchise, I kind of, low-key, I hate, I, I hate so much of what it inspired. I can't yeah. stand I Know What You Did Last Summer. I watched that recently. God, that's an awful movie. It is not good at all. And I, it's weird. Is it's written by Kevin Williamson, and it comes across as like an imitator of of Kevin Williamson. Maybe it's lacking direct Wes Craven style, but there's just more to that. Movies like Urban Legend and all that. I was like, none of them. Kind of like Pulp Fiction. How in the '90s they kind of these two movies started a new Pulp Fiction started a new wave of ironic self-aware crime films where the characters are into pop culture and witty scream started the meta uh, the meta craze and horror uh, and slasher movies with kids who watch horror movies and are aware and the, the, and i don't think the imitators of either of those movies either of those two 90s giants ever really got the formula down of what made those movies work and it's it is unfortunate that it revived the franchise it revived horror and it revived slashers like God, it was a load of crap that came out of this. <laughs> well, even though it had a lot of really bad imitators, don't you think it still really helped horror evolve? Yeah, it because, did. Because it, it didn't make these tropes okay anymore. Mm, yeah, that's true. Because like if, if you have tropes, you have to call attention to them now. Or subvert them or do something different or toss them out the window. It's like Scream had so pointed out these tropes and so put them on blast that it post scream it completely altered the genre you're like no you can't do that anymore you can't lie on that rely on that cliche because the audience has been made painfully aware of it and it's been and it's been 
poked at so many times that it forces you to like do something original so yeah uh, despite the crappy imitators it it was a good thing for horror for this to, to kind of force it to stop relying on so many things that are predictable and I think horror fans have grown more, you know, as a whole, been more intelligent over the years. And the fan base is growing bigger. So that's why there's a lot more intelligent people in it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this, the Scream franchise kind of catapulted that evolution mm-hmm. of, the, of the savvy horror fan. I, I think so, too. And now it's a common thing. Um, before Scream, every horror, mo- horror movie was populated by characters who never watched a horror movie or didn't understand and always made stupid decisions. After Scream, every character in a horror movie knows what horror movies are and knows what happens in horror movies and thus has to act smarter and make better decisions from there on out. So in the long run, yeah, I, a good thing for the, for the genre. So you got to take the bad with the good. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, um, Tune in to us next week. Uh, next week, we're going to be reviewing Scream 5, and then we'll do our horror to be roulette, um, picking up from last year. Um, I hope I have nothing but praises for the new Scream 5, which, by the way, is just called Scream. It's not called Scream 5. That new annoying trend of making legacy sequels, as they call them, and giving them the exact same title as the original. Such a weird trend. But, yeah, uh, it's... I think it's better than what they were going to do. They were going to have the five at the beginning where it's five and then cream. (laughs) Where the five X is an S. I'm glad they went against that. (laughs) Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. If if that's (laughs) it to just calling it scream, I can, I I, I, I can accept that. Hopefully it plays up on that. I'm hoping that it, um, because that's a big trend in the horror now is the legacy sequels like Halloween 2018 or Dr. Sleep, or, you know, movies Texas like... Texas Chainsaw Massacre coming up. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is, like, another legacy sequel. Uh, Candyman, which is another legacy sequel. So I wonder if it's going to harp on that trend. And they're all called the same thing as the original movies, too, for, for the, yeah. a lot of them. So I wonder if it's going to harp on that. And maybe on elevated horror. I keep reading that it's going to poke fun at some of the conventions of elevated horror. Oh, yeah. Should be interesting because elevated horror gets credited for doing things that horror doesn't do and for originality. But elevated horror does have its own tropes. Maybe they're cooler tropes or maybe they're more well, but they are tropes. So I wonder if they're going to play with that uh, in the same way that Scream 4 kind of poked fun at torture porn. But we'll see. I'm looking forward to it, whatever they do. Well, I, I hope it's good. Guys. I think we're both going in with high expectations. High expectations, but I'm remaining... Uh, I'm tempering them. I don't want to be disappointed, but regardless, I'm looking forward and I trust the filmmakers. I trust Kevin Williamson's involvement. And even if it's not the best, I'm going to be ha- happy just seeing um, Dewey, Gail, and uh, Sydney back on the screen. They, those characters have become such a part of the popular consciousness and pop culture, not just in horror. So it's going to be like returning to old friends that we all know and remember and grew up with and loved and seeing them evolve over the years so even at its worst it at, it has to at least be entertaining on that level same here and now you got deputy judy added it to the mix so that, sh- that should be a good one yeah well uh that's all for now um this is how we kicked off the new year with our scream franchise um so we have a new um like we promised all you all last year that we were going to update our social media our instagram and we did it we have a new instagram what's the instagram to visit now it's the horror show pictures. 
the horror show pictures or it'd be at the horror show pictures which is i guess how you would tag us in anything that you want um horror show official is the tiktok page and facebook.com slash pickles horror show is where you'll probably get the most updates from, from from us i think in terms of what we're up to in terms of um i guess was, this is more than a podcast for us in terms of the scripts we're working on the films that we're that are in development and all the projects and everything that we do facebook is where you can uh, uh see a lot of it tiktok is where you could see a good sampling of what we do kind of our greatest hits like little clips from the podcast and interviews we've done over the years and um at the horror show pictures yeah or instagram so please check us out there so you could keep updated on pay up and all the uh exciting projects that we have coming up this year including a movie that looks like we're gonna um, get filmed and done this year so pretty exciting stuff yeah so every aspect of production will be discussing it on the show as we get closer to it so uh look at look forward to that i do Till next week, folks. Happy horror. Happy horror.